You're listening to The Corbett Report, corbettreport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to this bonus episode of The Corbett Report Podcast. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this sixth day of October 2010. And as always, I invite the listeners to check into my website, corbettreport.com, where you can find out more about my work and the other sites that I've created, as well as those sites that I link to and support. This is the third installment of our, well, at the time being anyways, weekly Documentaries That Matter series in which I play audio of documentaries that are available either online or on DVD and that the filmmakers have given me express consent to play here on the podcast. And I think that this week I have a very, very good documentary lined up for you and it's in keeping with our conversation last week with Richard Grove, Jan Irvin, and... Paul Verge of Divergent Films. Well, we're going to play one of Paul Verge's films. Um, this one is Hijacking Humanity, and it's from 2007. And it is an extremely long documentary. It's three and a half hours, so you might not have time to listen to all this in one sitting, but that's, that's perfectly fine. Listen to it a bit at a time, and it is definitely worth listening to, especially for those who might have come to the alternative media and the truth movement in general in the last couple of years and maybe have missed out on some of the other ideas that have been around for some time now. This is an excellent compendium of ideas and understanding of the truth as it stood in 2007, and it contains a lot of very good information, especially Chapter 3 I found very interesting. But at any rate, I'll let you come to your own conclusions, and I'd like to let you know that I will be talking to Paul Verge of Divergent Films in a one-on-one interview uh, this weekend, so look for that on the Interviews tab of CorbettReport.com. I would, of course, urge and exhort all of the listeners to go to DivergentFilms.com, the homepage of Paul Verge's Divergent Films, where you can find more information about this documentary and his other documentaries, including Believers Beware and... 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline, which, of course, listeners might remember that I released on my YouTube channel earlier this year. So once again, I urge and exhort you to go there, and if you uh, want to take power and energy away from the system that is enslaving you, then you should take the money out of the pockets of the corporations that are in, in bed with the governments, that are in bed with the banksters, that are all trying to rape and pillage you for all your worth, and put that money instead where it can actually be used in the pockets of our independent filmmakers and artists like Paul Verge, people who really are doing this for the love of doing this and who are not in it for the money. And uh, definitely there's not a lot of money to be made in this. So please divert your money to people like Paul Verge and please buy an, a co- DVD copy of this film if you appreciate the audio because it does help to make this type of independent information possible. And if we don't support it, it will go away. So once again, please go to DivergentFilms.com and also please stay tuned for my interview with Paul Verge this weekend. But right now, let's sit back and enjoy hijacking humanity. So interesting to notice who it is we assassinate. Do you ever notice who it is? Stop to think of who it is we kill. It's always people who've told us to live together in harmony and try to love one another. Jesus, Gandhi, Lincoln, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, John Lennon. They all said, try to live together peacefully. Do you get your news from television, radio, or newspapers? Do you feel that, despite press releases, top stories, headlines, and sound bites, 
The news doesn't always give you the whole picture. Do you consider yourself a good, honest, tax-paying voting citizen? Do you hope that your bank has your best interest at heart? Do you sometimes feel that there's something hidden below the surface story of world events, but just don't have the time or energy to look into it? These questions may seem unrelated, but you will soon realize their correlation. So strap yourself in, and let's take a trip through time. In late 2003, we embarked on our first cross-country road trip from Canada to the United States. There was nervousness and excitement in the air. The world had seemed to have changed so much since the September 11th attacks. At least, that's what we were being told. Everywhere to be seen, countries going to war, calling each other evil, immense polarization dividing the people, the gap between rich and poor increasing steadily, plenty of struggle to go around. And now, a new environment of fear, where anyone could be a terrorist, and we, the people, would have to give up our liberties just to be safe. I remember entering the new millennium with hope, hope that things were getting better in the world. Hope that we were solving the big problems of the planet. Hope that my kids would grow up in a world better, not worse, than the one I was living in. In the span of a few short years, my hope has been seriously tested. We had to see for ourselves whether America was still the land of the free, home of the brave, or if it was becoming the land of the fear, home of the slave. Almost as a joke, I was given a book called *Alice in Wonderland and the World Trade Center Disaster: Why the Official Story of 9/11 Is a Monumental Lie*. I was never into reading any conspiracy literature, so I was satisfied reading the newspaper, watching CNN, and knowing all the pop culture infotainment news. I'd never actually read a book like this before, but the author seemed like he had some interesting viewpoints. At the Canadian-American border, our vehicle was selected for an intense search. They even called in the dogs. Somehow, I'd expected we'd be searched, found clean, and be on our merry way. But what happened next? I did not expect. After about 45 minutes, a gruff-looking border agent entered our waiting area, carrying my knapsack, with his arm outstretched like the bag was a piece of evidence. The agent approached me and told me he was interested in discussing the book. I was escorted to another area of the border facility, and they began questioning me as to my intentions in coming to the United States, what my knowledge of the book was, as well as whether I had any affiliations to political organizations. It was almost a blur, but I looked the agent square in the eye and told him the truth about what I was doing, answering his questions about where I was going and why I had the book. The whole time, I kept wondering, half jokingly, what is the big deal here? It's a book written by a guy who thinks reptilian aliens are in control of humanity, right? I wasn't about to take a 9/11 conspiracy book seriously, and yet here these guys were, Gestapo style, treating me like I was smuggling a weapon of mass destruction into the country. After talking my way out of this misunderstanding, eventually we were allowed to enter America. The agents were even nice enough to let me keep the book, but told me that I would be put on some kind of watch list. And that was that. We drove to Texas. It's a great state with some really nice people. But during that trip and on the way home, 
The contents of that book were the seeds that grew into the journey of this film, researching a great number of subjects to do with the world around us, from governments and terrorism, to economics, spirituality, industry, law, religion, energy, and the media and other subjects that have continually blown my mind again and again. I've spent literally thousands of hours researching. Many sleepless nights. Some nights even questioning my own sanity. I've traveled by plane, by car, and reached out by phone to discuss many subjects with many hundreds of people, and reached thousands upon thousands on the internet. This film is the result of the belief that there are some serious challenges in the world that need urgent attention. But yet, haven't been identified by the majority of people. Because of this, this is deliberate suppression by the powers that be. So the hope is that by reaching out to educate people on a mass scale, a large positive change can be the effect. There is an awakening happening to all of humanity. The question becomes: Do you want to stay asleep, or wake up and open your mind? Everybody makes choices in their lives, each and every day. We base these choices on the information we have at any given moment about how to deal with a situation. As human beings, when we feel we don't have sufficient information to make a good choice, we seek information from others, placing our trust in their hands. Now, isn't it possible that the people that provide official information to you, the politicians, news anchors, professors, doctors, lawyers, generals, bankers, and other authorities, would ever use that information to manipulate the public for their own gain? What if you had the power to buy up the entire world, to essentially play God with people's destiny through a monopoly on owning all currency? Would you own and control it all, everyone's lives, everyone's thoughts? It turns out there are people who would, and who are actively working to be our owners. The spirit of inquiry, the search for greater truth beyond religion and science. Profound seriousness of doing real thinking, philosophy, and ontology. These are almost totally lacking in humanity. Humanity is therefore subhuman from lack of genuine intelligence. 
they automatically reject any emerging facts or realities that do not fit in their brain-dead cognitive pattern of belief and disbelief. They watch too much television. The golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rule. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Outside the limit of our sight, feeding off us, perched on top of us from birth to death, are our owners. Our owners, they have us, they control us, they are our masters. Wake up, they're all about you, all around you. But there's a reason, there's a reason, there's a reason for this, there's a reason education sucks, and it's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, re the wealthy, that the real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets, and they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies. So they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know something? They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table and figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people, white collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. 
good, honest, hard-working people continue, these are people of modest means, continue to elect these rich cocksuckers who don't give a fuck about them. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't give a fuck about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Man. You know? And nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. That's what the owners count on, the fact that Americans will probably remain willfully ignorant because the owners of this country know the truth. It's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. During emergency situations, we often come together for the common good. Supporting one another to survive by lending a helping hand during disasters, we're even capable of risking our lives to help save one another. However, under many circumstances, when we are comfortable and complacent, we human beings tend to go with the flow. Our trustworthy nature sometimes taken advantage of by those who may not be looking out for our best interests. But then, how exactly might we be manipulated? Could the manipulation be subtle enough that if we're not even aware of it, we end up more prone to its exploiting effect? New York Times best-selling author Robert Prechter Jr. coined the word socionomics, which explains the relationship between human social behavior and the state of the economy. It has been argued that those who control our financial infrastructure often lead or guide social trends through manipulation. Socionomics, on the other hand, reveals how social mood is often the cause and economic outcome is the effect. Sounds a bit confusing, right? Well, consider this next gentleman. A man named Edward Bernays pioneered the term public relations and was the father of modern propaganda techniques and advertising. His vision transformed advertising from fulfilling need to creating desire. He also happened to be the nephew of Sigmund Freud. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in the democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. Bernays set out to experiment with the minds of the popular classes. His most dramatic experiment was to persuade women to smoke. At that time, there was a taboo against women smoking, and one of his early clients, George Hill, the president of the American Tobacco Corporation, asked Bernays to find a way of breaking it. He said, we're losing half of our market because men have invoked the taboo against women smoking in public. Can you do anything about that? I said, let me think about it. And then I said, have I your permission to see a psychoanalyst to find out what cigarettes mean to women? He said, what'll it cost? So I called up Dr. Brill, A.A. Brill, who is a leading psychoanalyst 
in New York at that time. How can you even call your uncle? Why don't you call your uncle? Because he was in jail. A.A. Brill was one of the first psychoanalysts in America. And for a large fee, he told Bernays that cigarettes were a symbol of the penis and of male sexual power. He told Bernays that if he could find a way to connect cigarettes with the idea of challenging male power, then women would smoke, because then they would have their own penises. So if you understand how the manipulation works, then all you have to do is identify, oh, this person is using bandwagon techniques. Like, in my public school, I was taught, and it was like third or fourth grade, uh, about the various forms of propaganda. You know, most of my life, I was pretty um, skeptical of advertising, and uh, I, I really didn't believe that people would do what they were told to do. I didn't believe that people were so malleable, and I didn't believe that people would accept uh, information at face value, and yet all the time I didn't believe any of that, I accepted information at face value. And so I think the genius of the Edward Bernays of the world is to realize that man is a man is a very malleable, fickle, and uh, and docile creature, mentally docile creature, who will virtually do whatever he's told, especially if it if there's a you know a little payday at the end. The number one means of taking control of somebody is by controlling their mind and what they think they do what, what they think is correct or not it's psychological warfare oh these are the different ways that people make people do things they don't want to other than giving them money every year new york held an easter day parade to which thousands came and bernays decided to stage an event there he persuaded a group of rich debutantes to hide cigarettes under their clothes then they should join the parade and at a given signal from him, they were to light up the cigarettes dramatically. Bernays then informed the press that he had heard that a group of suffragettes were preparing to protest by lighting up what they called torches of freedom. He knew this would be an outcry, and he knew that all of the photographers would be there to capture this moment. And so he was ready with a phrase, which was torches of freedom. And so here you have a symbol women, young women, debutantes, smoking a cigarette in public with a phrase that means anybody who believes in this kind of equality pretty much has to support them in the ensuing debate about this because torches of freedom. I mean, what's on all American coins? It's liberty. She's holding up the torch. And so the next day, this was not just in all of the New York, it was across the United States and around the world. And from that point forward, uh, the sale of cigarettes to women began to rise. He had made them socially acceptable with a single symbolic act. What Bernays had created was the idea that if a woman smoked, it made her more powerful and independent. An idea that still persists today. Bernays made it socially acceptable for women to smoke cigarettes, and similar techniques of co-opted messaging and relabeling of things in order to create progress has become only more intense in the last few decades as the push for globalization and further centralization of governing power has increased. But clearly, it is the intelligent minorities which need to make use of propaganda continuously and systematically. 
small groups of persons can and do make the rest of us think what they please about a given subject. Basically, I mean, first of all, it's fundamental. TV is a mind-controlled device that runs at 60 megahertz, uh, you know, the same frequency as your mind receives patterns. Uh, it's continuously been used as a device to inject information to uh, novice minds or people who have no discernment in the information they take in. So basically, if you're not making a conscious decision on the information you're taking in, you're just storing everything. Are you storing it all as truth? Like, how are you disseminating what you just saw in the commercial and what you saw in the news? Because people don't, and that's why commercials work. And that's why they spend billions of dollars a year, because showing you something that's false right next to something that you just took to be true, oh, I like Wendy's hamburgers, okay, I want to, you know, it makes you want to, you know, next time you drive by, you remember that commercial and you pull in there. So they have made their money. Capitalism is basically, it works off of a contrived shortage. And the people who contrive the shortage are the people who know how best to work the system against everyone else and make a profit, right? And charge interest and uh, fractional reserve lending and all these little schemes that they, they've used to basically infiltrate us and drain us of every piece of worth and then bury us and then charge us for that, right? What the corporations realized they had to do was transform the way the majority of Americans thought about products. One leading Wall Street banker, Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers, was clear about what was necessary. We must shift America, he wrote, from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Thanks to a takeover of the printing industry and creation of the education industry, small elite super wealthy groups of people have been able to hide their darker connections and pasts of exploitation and misery by sugarcoating their images in textbooks that are taught as official history. And I'd say, what's your name? He'd say, Al Jolson. I'd say, Mr. President, Al Jolson. The next day, every newspaper in the United States had a front-page story, President Coolidge entertains actors at White House, and the Times had a headline which said, President nearly laughed. You don't really realize what's being done to you, and in that way, I think that the corporate media molests and accosts the unknowing people who sit there and take it in for reality because it's scripted. You don't know who's writing the scripts, and if you look and see where the intelligence people are mingling in with the media, and if you go back and trace it, you have J.P. Morgan talking about how they, you know, he bought off the heads of all the media back in the 1900s, early 1900s. And so that there's this real openness to Bernays' techniques being used to sell products to the masses. Beginning in the early 20s, the New York banks funded the creation of chains of department stores across America. They were to be the outlets for the mass-produced goods, and Bernays' job was to produce the new type of customer. Bernays began to create many of the techniques of mass consumer persuasion that we now live with. He was employed by William Randolph Hearst to promote his new women's magazines. And Bernays glamorized them by placing articles and advertisements that linked products made by others of his clients 
to famous film stars like Clara Bow, who was also his client. Bernays also began the practice of product placement in the movies. And he dressed the stars at the film's premieres with clothes and jewellery from other firms he represented. He was, he claimed, the first person to tell car companies they could sell cars as symbols of male sexuality. He employed psychologists to issue reports that said products were good for you and then pretended they were independent studies. He organised fashion shows in the department stores and paid celebrities to repeat the new and essential message. You bought things not just for need, but to express your inner sense of yourself to others. The public basically has their opinions formed by consensus, polls, things like this that are used to steer uh, populations. It is often said that half of writing history consists of the winners hiding their own atrocities. The largest problem lies in the control of information. If the people in charge of dispensing information become corrupted to an organized elite bent on domination, then we no longer have a trusted source investigating the true agendas of our leaders. Let's talk politics. You may have already considered that politics is a game of deception, maneuvering oneself into having as much control as possible, while at the same time maintaining the squeakiest public image. As countless scandals have indicated, Lord Acton was right. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So let's talk power. If there are those who truly wanted to rule the world, do you think it would be wise of them to put themselves as the true rulers in the public eye? Or do you think it would be safer and wiser for them to guard their privacy in obscurity with layer after layer of easily controlled political leaders? With a series of middlemen acting as public figures to create a buffer of control and create a false dichotomy of choices, whereby you can choose Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, you still have to stay within a two-party system of right versus left. It's like being thirsty and given a choice of only Coke or Pepsi. What is the difference when I only want a glass of water? It's simple. It creates divisions and diversions to protect rulers in the shadows of secrecy, away from the awareness of the people who might challenge their power. Well, if you study history a couple hundred years ago, and you find these parties uh, went through an evolution, and at one point the Democrats and Republicans were in the same party, well, where did our choice go? Where did our choice go? Well, that's the whole thing. They don't give us choice. They give you this hand or this hand, but you're getting to the same body and the same educational structure. And people were like, well, this control structure has existed for thousands of years, and you just found out about it, so how are we going to do it? Well, the fact that we just found out about it, I think, is a big step. Because once you know people find out and that information propagates, even if they try to bury it again, in 500 years, somebody might uncover some archive, and it has all this information. It totally changes that, you know, the, the whole dynamic of where things go. government as an entity in general, do you trust the, the, the machinery of the system? Um, yeah, I would say to, to agree, yeah. 
Okay. Do you, do you trust your government? About as far as I can throw them. <laughs> do you think the, the government would ever lie to protect the people? Um, I think everybody's got something to hide, you know, something they don't want everybody to know. Um, I don't think we all need to know it. The government likes to keep things hidden, you know, the truth is away from us. They don't really need to lie to us as it is sort of to show us the wrong truth. If someone writes uh, something on a piece of paper and, you know, there's little details in there about, you know, things that they can protect themselves, I don't worry about that. Yeah, again, like, you know, you're, you're thinking about the little things, right? Like, I mean, I know there's lots of policies with lots of details and everything. It's, yeah. I mean... <laughs> I don't think it. I know they have been lying to us. Okay. It's been, it's been happening for a while now. Well, again, I, I don't worry about stuff like that. Like, uh, well, I'm a Christian, so I, I believe, you know, God is taking care of all of us, and I don't have to worry about other people, what they think or say, or... To understand how this power structure works to keep us all under a general level of control, you need to understand the concept of compartmentalization. If you were to call your cable company, needing for some reason to speak with the owner, you'd have to go through a chain of people, starting from the bottom, the call center. From there, you would get one of the hundreds of people in the call center to pass you on to his or her supervisor. Of the few dozen supervisors, you would then ask to speak to the supervisor's manager. And of the handful of managers, you might ask to speak to the manager's boss, who is one of a small number of department heads. They would then direct you to one of a few vice presidents, who could possibly let you speak with the single president or CEO who sits at the top of the corporate structure. Now, think of a pyramid structure, kind of like the one on the back of a US dollar bill. Picture the CEO of a corporation or president of a nation, chief of an intelligence agency, or general in an army. That guy is the leader. Sometimes he's elected, sometimes not. He will have an agenda of things he wants done in the form of actions by the people below him in the command structure. The leader can pass orders down to the next level, to the vice president, or lieutenant commander, or project manager. And each inferior level of management will then pass those orders or instructions on down the line to their teams and so on. This is the classic military chain of command style of organization. It is also the system of ranking for organized criminal syndicates like the Mafia, Yakuza, and Triads, and also secret societies like the Freemasons, Knights of Malta, the Club of Rome, and the Bohemian Club. Often the leader is advised by people who belong to what are called think tanks. These think tanks are groups that formulate policies to be carried out by the leaders, and their members are often the so-called experts, statesmen, and industry leaders, and even corporate heads, who also belong to various other groups, think tanks, organizations, and societies. The persons belonging to these assorted groups form a networked system of interlocking influence peddling and control schemes, which, in their various forms, have guided the general progress of humanity for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. There are these think tanks out there as well. And these entities are basically there to cook ideas based on what they need in the background and how they're going to get it from us and how they're going to get what they want at the end and we're going to be left, like, you know, holding the bag, being hoodwinked. And those think tanks are responsible for some of the worst atrocities ever to befall mankind because I know that there were think tanks back in the 20s and 30s that are like, if we fund these guys, they'll go over and take over Europe for us. 
and we won't have to do the dirty work. That way, if it doesn't work out, we're the good guys, right? And we'll bring 40,000 of them over to America in Operation Paperclip, and we'll make NASA, and then we'll build the American people out of a bunch more money. What if our entire system, every external aspect of our lives that we plug into, from government, law, money, medicine, military, education, employment, energy, and even our sacred belief systems, were controlled and manipulated in a top-down pyramid fashion? Is it possible that a handful of very rich families could be at the top of this pyramid, and that our leaders, acting as lieutenants for this elite, control our information and perceptions for their combined benefit and at our expense? It's important to be aware of a German philosopher named Hegel, and one of his philosophies called the Hegelian dialectic, or problem-reaction-solution. This theory says that in order to create progress, a group in power may have to do things that will be disliked by an aware populace. So what they do is create a problem which garners a desired reaction of the population, saying something must be done to fix this problem. And then the solution is offered in the form of the progress you had already planned. So, for instance, a sound motive often presented by 9/11 conspiracy researchers is that the U.S. government desired to pass the USA Patriot Act, which gave it a ton of new controls, powers, and abilities over the general population. However, there was no reason to pass this law, that is, until the event of 9/11. After which, this complex 300-page law was rushed through Congress without most members even reading it. And this is, you know, the misappropriation of、uh, Hegel's, you know, dialect, the Hegelian dialect, where、uh, it's been morphed into. They create a problem because they seek you to provide a reaction, so that they can provide you the, with the solution from which they profiteer and steal your your freedom and liberty. Whether it's,、uh, you know, with 9/11, where they're saying, "Well, we have to protect you now, so now we're going to have to put a fence around your country, and now we're going to have to have national ID card because these terrorists got fake ID." And basically, they have a checklist of things they want. On October 26, 2001, 40 days after the 9/11 attacks, President George Bush signed into law the USA Patriot Act, an acronym for Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. The mark of this being part of a Hegelian dialectic is that the Patriot Act was offered as a solution to the people of the United States. Even though it had been written before the 9/11 attacks. In politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can be sure it was planned that way. So then, what is the truth? What is the plan? Is our world under a subtle form of dominating control by elite families who've planned for at least several hundred years to create a one-world government that controls all information? And enforces that control with a world army, funding everything with a one-world currency that's electronically based and cashless. Are we heading towards a version of the future not unlike 1984, where elites desire us to be implanted with microchips that verify our identity, our bank account digits, and all other pertinent information, including our location, tying us permanently to their system, and thus ending the idea of the free, sovereign human? 
Those who hold financial, governmental, and authoritative power have the motive and opportunity to use social engineering techniques that have been perfected over the last hundred years to create whatever trends are set before us, whether it's a fashion fad or marketing a profitable war. They've deduced that only 15% of us use deductive reasoning and critical thinking, while the other 85% simply follow blindly and believe whatever they're told. Because of an unquestioningly obedient posture towards those who claim authority. To get a better understanding of how this works in regards to both financial and social manipulation, visit thecauseofeffect.com for further information. On this website, you'll also find resources to give you a more complete view of how authoritative institutions are structured and why they push towards consolidating and centralizing power, including a very frank look at the outlined goals of the elites who exercise their power today. One way or another, we will have world government. The question is whether it shall be by consent or by conquest. So they have a really delicate balance to walk between keeping us relatively fearful, but not so fearful that we stop what we're doing and really examine how it is that they've been waging. There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. And, uh, and that uh, we will in fact find um, uh, weapons or, or evidence of weapons programs that are, are conclusive. I don't think we'll discover anything myself. It appears that there were not weapons of mass destruction there. You said you knew where they were. I did not. We know where they are. They're in the area around uh, Tikrit and Baghdad and, and uh, east, west, south and north. Well, first of all, I, I haven't lied. There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Talking about lies and your, your allegation that there was bulletproof evidence of ties between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. Was that a lie? Intelligence gathered by this and other governments leaves no doubt that the Iraqi regime continues to possess and conceal some of the most lethal weapons ever devised. Are people going to find out the truth, and the truth will say that this intelligence is good intelligence, no doubt in my mind. I don't know anybody that I can think of who has contended that the Iraqis had nuclear weapons. And we believe he has, in fact, reconstituted nuclear weapons. Saddam Hussein is determined to get his hands on a nuclear bomb. We cannot wait for the final proof. He's got him. He's got him. The smoking gun. He's got him. It could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. Colin Powell didn't lie. 
My colleagues, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. He has not developed any significant capability with respect to weapons of mass destruction. He is unable to project conventional power against his neighbors. Are people going to find out the truth? I have not suggested there's a connection between Iraq and 9-11. You have said in the past that it was, quote, pretty well confirmed. No, I never said that. Okay. I, I never think said that, that is... That's absolutely not. What I said was, uh, it's been pretty well confirmed, that he did go to Prague and he did meet with uh, a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service. Saddam Hussein aids and protects terrorists, including members of al-Qaeda. Secretly and without fingerprints, he could provide one of his hidden weapons to terrorists or help them develop their own. What did Iraq have to do with what? The attack on the World Trade Center. Nothing. He said there were three main reasons for going to war in Iraq. Weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein has gone to elaborate lengths, spent enormous sums, taken great risks to build and keep weapons of mass destruction. The claim that Iraq was sponsoring terrorists would have attacked us on 9-11. Before September the 11th, many in the world believed that Saddam Hussein could be contained. And that Iraq had purchased nuclear materials from Niger. The regime is seeking a nuclear bomb. Now, all three of those turned out, turned out to be false. Uh, first, just if I might correct a misperception, I, I don't think we ever said, at least I know I didn't say, that there was a direct connection between September the 11th and, 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 and Saddam Hussein. Who does the president think he's effing kidding? Uh, of course, it was information that was mistaken. There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. <laughs> Nope, no weapons over there. Maybe under here. When you have a precedent set like that, and you have somebody, George Tennant, acknowledging in his book that he knew that the administration was deceiving the American people into a situation that is murdering young men and women from this country and others. That George Tennant and Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice and George Bush et al. should be in fucking jail. We are in the process of being turned into a police state that's being implemented. Um, and then just basically the loss of Canada, the end of Canada, with the integration of Canada into a North American Union of Canada, the United States, and Mexico. And basically the end of our sovereignty, um, the end of Canada as we've known it, the end of the country that, that we've been. In the United States today, things are a mess. That is... There's a huge amount of negative energy being generated externally against the U.S. and internally from within. Internationally, the country's not looked favorably upon because of the appearance of an imperialist agenda and several unpopular wars. Domestically, the U.S. pushes for more global trade, deeper economic integration and centralization, and reduction of liberties for the populace. 
Canada and Mexico have signed an agreement with the United States called the North American Security and Prosperity Agreement that puts both countries on the doorstep of joining with the United States into the creation of a North American Union, which would centralize and streamline the rules, laws, acts, and statutes for all three countries, abolishing their sovereignty. A North American Union to compete with the European Union. Never heard of it? The Bush administration tonight is pushing rather publicly now its security and prosperity partnership, a plan to quote-unquote integrate the economies of the United States, Mexico, and Canada by the year 2010. You're thinking, you didn't vote for that. Your congressman didn't vote for that. Your senator didn't vote for that. You're correct. It is a very ambitious plan for three very different economies and nations. It's moving forward without congressional oversight, in many cases congressional knowledge, and certainly not the approval of the American people, nor for that matter, the Canadian people, nor the Mexican people. After 9-11, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico began what they call the Security and Prosperity Partnership, aimed at beefing up security on the borders without halting commerce. But some conservatives see it as a grand conspiracy by President Bush and others to erase our borders with Mexico and Canada and surrender our sovereignty to something called the North American Union. The Commerce Secretary denies an outright plan for a single currency or a European-style American Union. Instead, the goal is, quote, harmonizing hundreds of rules and regulations, but critics see stealthy changes taking place deep within government bureaucracies with input from business and academia, but away from lawmakers and voters. All this is about is open borders, open borders between Mexico and America, America and Canada, open borders without any controls, and there's no telling what could happen to this country that would be in detrimental to the future of America. Numerous SPP documents reveal a goal of moving people and goods more easily among the three countries. A special televised meeting of the New York-based Council on Foreign Relations. The speaker, Vice President Dick Cheney, takes a question from David Rockefeller. Vice President, uh, I just enjoyed so much your whole speech, but I was particularly pleased that you gave such a strong endorsement for the free trade agreement for all the Americas, subject that has been of great concern to me for many years, and particularly recently, and I think it's absolutely essential for the strength of our economy. Rockefeller's role in the drive for an FTAA was a lot more central than he portrays. Rockefeller cultivated Latin American leaders who could be counted on to support such a proposal. Both the 1994 Miami Summit and the FTAA proposal were conceived and nurtured by a Rockefeller-created network. Prominent among the organizations sponsoring the Miami event were the Council of the Americas, founder and honorary chairman, David Rockefeller, the Americas Society, chairman, David Rockefeller, the Forum of the Americas, founder, David Rockefeller, the Institute for International Economics, financial backer and board member, David Rockefeller, the Trilateral Commission, founder and honorary chairman, David Rockefeller. Rockefeller's influence also extends to the current administration. He was chairman emeritus of the CFR when Vice President Dick Cheney once served as a director, a relationship that Cheney concealed during his congressional career. 
It's good to be back at the Council on Foreign Relations. As uh, Pete mentioned, I've been a member for a long time and was actually a director for some period of time. I never mentioned that when I was campaigning for re-election back home in Wyoming. My name is Connie Fogel. I'm the leader of the Canadian Action Party. Um, the intention in North America is to turn it into a power block for North America to compete with the European Union and then to compete with a third area, which would be primarily the Asian area. And then those amongst the three of them, they'll compete to see who gets to be the big gun. But if they don't want you to know of its existence, then it must be that they don't want you to have remedy for tyranny. And that must mean they're looking at acting tyrannical. I have, yeah. It sounds like it's part of a globalist agenda to destroy national sovereignty and uh, put a uh, banking elite in power worldwide. That's what it looks like to me. Um, I could be wrong. I haven't studied that closely enough to be sure. But I have studied 9-11 close enough to be sure. The fact that all of these things are happening behind closed doors. I, I mean, why is there not... Uh, some greater sense of what's going on on the part of this this government. Congressman Jones points out that there's a website at the Commerce Department. He doesn't want a website. He wants to sit down and find out what this is all about. Trade, yeah. these things belong in the arena of Congress, and he'd like to see uh, some oversight there. Yeah, I, I have to say that what we're watching here and what you've reported and uh, all of our colleagues have been reporting on with the so-called North American Union uh, and in a few other quarters, uh, the American people have every reason to be very concerned. Uh, the suggestion that these uh, these corporate and uh, business elites, and now we can include uh, uh, some of the uh, the luminaries of geopolitics, uh, George Schultz and others, meeting on these issues behind closed doors without the approval or the knowledge of the of the American public is is ridiculous. I would really like to know, and I'm sure that you would as well. Just what in the world the Bush administration thinks it's doing uh, carrying out uh, this kind of policy without the approval of the American people or the United States Congress. There is still that little thing called a constitution. Well, the government relies on that. They rely on their fear. The fear that they generate supports the deception because it makes it so that you aren't even going to look into it. But the, the fear stops you from examining it and it makes the deception work. The North American Union idea gets hardly any media attention, yet it is one of the largest changes that would affect nearly half a billion people in some of the richest and largest countries in the world. Ask your local politician, and even they may be ignorant of it. However, if a senator or premier were to claim no knowledge of this agenda, they would be lying. These leaders are not ignorant, though they may pretend to be. The centralization and consolidation of power that would manifest from the creation of a North American Union and later on a Pan-Asian Union, serves only to create more layers of control on a population whose freedoms appear to be drying up. Well, there's a power struggle. Uh, there's an ultimate end goal of somebody in the world being the most powerful to control the world and be able to use the resources of the world to for their greed. Greed, power, money, it's all uh, that's all what, what's out operating there. And right now, uh, we have a European Union that's a joinder of a lot of uh, countries in Europe, which is fairly powerful. There is a fervent belief among some conservatives that President Bush is planning to dissolve the borders with Canada and Mexico as part of a secret effort to form what is called a North American Union. I call it a stealth process. Well, I say the president is engineering, as it were, almost a coup d'etat, almost a change of government into a, a, a regional 
structure. It is going to negate the sovereignty of the United States of America, and it certainly has uh, grave uh, concerns for our Constitution as well. Those who subscribe to this idea use words like unconstitutional and even treason to describe what they see as an effort to create here something like the European Union with a single currency. Whatever happened to thinking for yourself? You are a, a, a human being, and you, if you want to say you've evolved here or that God created you in seven days, cool. Did he give you a brain? When did he say that you should... Uh, write off your conscience and give up all decision-making ability and put your trust in somebody who was, what, chosen, appointed, got there because everyone else he was with got killed that day? I mean, come on. Let's think about how the chain of command works and who's at the top of it and what are the interests of these people? The idea that the White House would respond that this is on their website, uh, this involves uh, intricate uh, uh, workings uh, amongst the Commerce Department of this country the, and Canada and Mexico's, of course, uh, a regional prosperity and security program. Uh, this is absolute ignorance. And the fact that we are, uh, we, we reported this, we should point out, uh, when it was signed. But as we watch this thing progress, these working groups are continuing, they're intensifying. Uh, what, are, what in the world are these people thinking about? Well, they say, look, these are a declaration and an outline of our priorities. And when I called them today, Lou, they said I, I was the first phone call they had received literally since the deal was first signed. So people are not paying attention, and they're letting them, in fact, get away with this. Uh, we're coming into a cyclical bottom for gold, and it rises going into December, January, so that might be the reverse of the dollar fall. Um, apart from that, I think one thing people who are dollar-based need to focus on is the Amero. That's the one thing that nobody's talking about that I think is going to have a big impact on uh, on everybody's life in Canada, the U.S., and uh, Mexico. If you Google it, you'll find out all about it. Well, you could tell us a little bit more right now. You always hear about CNBC. <laughs> the Amero is the proposed new currency for the North American community, which is being uh, developed right now between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico to make a borderless community, much like the EU, and uh, the dollar, Canadian dollar, U.S. dollar, and the Mexican peso replaced by the Amero. You, um, you really think that will get any, any leeway? Uh, you may want to visit a couple of websites and see how far along it is. The Canadians are pretty upset about it, whereas the Americans, apart from the Texans um, are the only people who know anything about it. The, the rest of the public's really uh, sort of with their head in the sand on this one. All you have to do is look at the fact that CAFTA passed this year, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, and no one in America seems to know what that is. Well, let me tell you, America, it's the destruction of the country, okay? They're going to take away the borders in Canada, and they're going to take away the borders in Mexico, and we're going to have a North American super state, and that's what they're after. They want NAFTA superhighways where nobody's checked, and they can get slave labor and be a part of that. I mean, they've already moved out most of our industry out of this country. You know, I, I was asked the other day, uh, about whether or not I really thought the American people had the stomach to stand up and stop this nonsense, this direction from a group of elites in absolute contravention of our law, of our Constitution, uh, every national value. And I hope, I pray that I'm right when I said yes. But this is, this is beyond belief. This is all by design. And those are the stakes. It's interesting to take a little trip through the last hundred years of history and look behind the curtain 
at the money men that put their time, energy, and planning into fulfilling this Orwellian future. But to really understand the how, you need to know a little bit about the who's, the when's, and the why's. To get the clearest picture, you need to do what any detective would do. Follow the money. Throughout history, people have bartered their skills, or the results of their labor, as property which could be bought and sold. Money is useful as an exchange medium, especially when two products or services don't have an equal value. Whether paper or precious metals, money is meant to make life easier when needing to sell or acquire goods. But who created money as we know it today? Who manages the money? Who created our monetary system? And what direction is it headed in? In my opinion, uh, history is just a uh, play. It's a drama put on by the central bankers. They own the politicians. They own the media. Uh, they own. They run the intelligence uh, agencies. They they run these uh, uh, secret societies like Freemasonry, which penetrates into every walk of life. And essentially, they stage every war that since the the Civil War and probably before that, the American Civil War, they staged, staged the First World War. They, they brought Hitler to power and staged the Second World War. The family thought to be the most responsible for the formulation of the modern central banking system of the last 300 years are the Rothschild family, the richest family in the world. Their fortune has never been audited, and their funding connections stretch out to many, many dozens of countries. It has been said that at one point they may have owned half the world's known wealth. Meyer Amschel Bauer was born in 1744 and changed his last name to Rothschild, which means Rothschild, or Red Shield, the family logo for their bank. He built his fortunes aiding Prince William of Hanau's rent-a-troop business, which had supplied Britain with many soldiers to fight against the rebelling American colonists. Having five sons and five daughters, Rothschild sent his five sons to establish House of Rothschild's merchant banks in five different countries. Son Amschel was placed in charge of the branch in Berlin. Son Salomon was sent over to the Vienna branch. Jacob went to Paris, France, and Karl opened up the Rothschild Bank in Naples. The headquarters of the House of Rothschild was, and is, in London, which was headed by Nathan Rothschild, the third of the five sons. In 1815's Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was making his last stand against the British alliance headed by Lord Wellington. The Rothschild family financed an intelligence network of continent-wide couriers and messengers who were able to inform Nathan Rothschild, now the head of the British arm of the Rothschild banking enterprise, at least 20 hours before even the government knew that Napoleon had lost Waterloo to the Brits. Rothschild started dramatically dumping his stocks, which spread the false rumor that Napoleon had won the battle. People sold in droves, sending prices down to a fraction of their worth. Rothschild easily bought up the vast majority of companies before the end of the day, and with the truth revealed the next day of Napoleon's defeat, Rothschild's new holdings massively multiplied in value, making him unquestionably the richest man in Britain. Funding both sides of wars, 
has turned out to be a major way of making massive profit. And so, throughout the years, most, if not all, major wars have been funded by large banking houses like the Rothschilds, which control the central banks that issue currency and lend it to governments. The more the government borrows from the private central bankers, the more interest they have to pay back and the higher the taxes are for their citizens. You can borrow money to make weapons, borrow money to transport and equip soldiers, borrow money to attack, borrow money to give to your friends to rebuild what you've destroyed, borrow money to make the public think that this is all in their best interest. And don't forget to skim huge amounts of kickbacks off the top along the way. Towards the end of the 1800s, and after the many wars in Europe, most of the countries were bankrupt and in permanent debt to the banksters. Only in the burgeoning United States, which was completely self-sufficient, was new wealth emerging, and the banksters sought to extract and exploit this in a new opportunity. They would take control of the power to print money away from the people and put it into their own greedy hands. You know, they're told something from birth and then that's all there is. And they don't want to think or question outside that. It's always been about property or plunder and it's easier to plunder than to work for property because you have to labor. First, I mean, when you talk about conspiracy, conspiracy is a guy and another guy or, you know, two people. Uh, talking about something in some way that they're going to take advantage of these other people. That goes on. That's, that's business. That's not even conspiracy. Business goes on all the time, right? If they do it at a profit and it falls within these rules, it's no longer conspiracy. It, you know, it's only conspiracy when what they do falls outside of those rules. Banking was conceived in iniquity and was born in sin. The bankers own the earth, take it away from them, but leave them the power to create deposits and with the flick of a pen, they will create enough deposits to buy it back again. However, take it away from them, and all the great fortunes like mine will disappear. And they ought to disappear, for this would be a happier and better world to live in. But if you wish to remain the slaves of bankers and pay the cost of your own slavery, let them continue to create deposits. I know I could be wrong, but the most plausible explanation for me is that um, modern society is a fraud which spawns frauds like communism, feminism, Zionism, the war on terror, 9-11. I mean, we live, our whole society is just rife with hoax and fraud because it's all based, they're all being promoted by the central bankers who have to protect the, the, the central fraud, which is our government can't create cash. That's the fraud. Our government and we as citizens, we don't have control over our own collective credit, our national credit. We have to appeal to a private central banking cartel based in England to get them to lend us money, which they create out of nothing based on our ability to repay it. I think what it is is they, they seize power over you. It's about who is master over you and whether or not they get you to spend a large part of your life living in a manner that allows them benefit without having to do much work. Essentially, they have control over you, and it's about whether or not you want them to have control and whether or not you are going to grow spiritually in order to deny them that control. The film Money as Debt takes an in-depth look to explain exactly how our money in modern society works, but a simple explanation is as follows. In almost every country in the world, the government no longer prints the majority, if any, of the money for citizens to use. 
That privilege is being usurped by the central banking cartels, who print the money out of thin air, loan it to the government at interest, but never print enough money to cover the interest, thus ensuring a perpetual debt that can never be repaid, but instead gets only deeper and larger. This is where we get our unending national debt. Many leaders in history have resisted the attempts by central bankers to remove the power of money printing from the people, including Presidents Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln. In his era, he was the leading opponent of the privately owned central bank. Well, what happened to him was an assassin uh, who was connected to international bankers, who was later found out, got right up to Jackson, stuck two pistols in his belly, fired both at the same time, both misfired. Jackson was saved. President John Kennedy had planned to shut down the Federal Reserve and start issuing silver-backed U.S. notes, but sadly was assassinated as well. Uh, the same thing went for John Kennedy, that he was planning to uh, reintroduce uh, uh, the U.S. notes uh, rather than Federal Reserve notes. So they're getting interest, and I'm not sure if they're getting the principal, but they're certainly getting the interest for nothing, because they're creating this money out of nothing. And as the uh, homeless man's dog thought, I can do this myself, you know? We can uh, print our own currency. Money used to be backed by precious metals, such as gold, but since the Nixon administration, that standard no longer applies, and money is now worth only the paper it's printed on. The cause of many of the challenges we face in North America today were solidified in 1913 with the creation of the Federal Reserve System of issuing money for the United States. The films The Money Masters and America, Freedom to Fascism, as well as G. Edward Griffin's book The Creature from Jekyll Island, discuss in detail the history of how a small group of men, all banking leaders and politicians with banking interests, gathered in secret on J.P. Morgan's Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia in 1908 to plot the creation of the Federal Reserve System. The refusal of King George III to allow the colonies to operate an honest money system which freed the ordinary man from the clutches of money manipulators was probably the main cause of the revolution. The reason that the War of Independence happened in the United States was because the colonies were printing their own money based upon their ability to perform uh, work. So what happened was they were prospering because they were printing debt-free money of extreme value that the people um, used and wanted to use as currency, so they were prospering and growing. This scared England, and they, they banned it and said, no, you only can take money from us and borrow it in interest, putting them into debt. And that was the fundamental reason for their revolution. After the Great Money Panic of 1907, which some say was precipitated and caused purposely by the banking interests, Senator Nelson Aldrich's Senate hearings recommended a central bank to manage the currency of the United States in order to prevent such a panic from happening again. Aldrich was, of course, intimately connected with the various banking houses of the time, including J.P. Morgan, Paul Warburg, who represented the Rothschilds, and, of course, the Rockefellers of Standard Oil and later Chase Manhattan Corporation, now J.P. Morgan Chase. Aldrich's bill was easily defeated because nobody wanted central bankers to have this monopoly on currency. Meeting on Jekyll Island in 1910, however, 
These men planned out what would become the Federal Reserve System. I believe that the banking institutions are more dangerous than standing armies. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of currency, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive people of their prosperity until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Of all this information out here, the people at the news say, you know, but let me try to contact the newspaper and let them know about, you know, whatever. So I'm sure people have done this over the past several years and come to the, uh, the same conclusion. The problem is that we all haven't put our conclusions together and said, oh, we all realize this. And as soon as you, you, know, you need to do two things, you need to get the public to realize that they've been lied to. And you need to give them something constructive and meaningful to do out of that. Right. You have to give you have, uh, you have to empower them and let them know that there is something you can do and you can make some sort of change, even if it's on a small personal $10 level or whatever. The idea is that we're not helpless. You found out it may suck for a while. You come to terms with it and figure out how to go forward from here, because this is what life's about. This time, they helped fund Woodrow Wilson into power in 1913 under the promise that he would sign the Federal Reserve Act into law. The Federal Reserve Act was passed just prior to Christmas vacation, with the majority of politicians already home for the holidays. Thus, the bill was rammed through Congress and Senate with the skids greased, which is a term often used in legislative circles about laws passed with little or no oversight. Woodrow Wilson later realized his mistake. I am the most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is now controlled by its system of credit. We are no longer a government by free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men. The Federal Reserve, which isn't federal and has no reserves, is sold to the public as a stabilizer of the market. But that is in fact the opposite of the truth. In reality, their management of the U.S. currency is a giant scam fluctuating the money supply with surges and retractions, while no longer reporting how much cash is actually out there. They cause inflation and deflation, recessions and depressions, and manipulation of the people into taking on a debt that is now in the trillions of dollars. In 1920, another manipulated money panic shut down many of the smaller independent banks, allowing the bankers an even further consolidation of their power. On October 24, 1929, the New York Stock Exchange experienced its massive crash that signaled the beginning of the Great Depression. In the time leading up to the crash, the banksters had quietly gotten out of the market and set themselves up cash-heavy. The Fed then contracted the nation's money supply, thus creating deflation which caused runs on the banks and brought the Great Depression into full swing. With the crisis shocking the nation into submission, the Fed then claimed the need to fight the Depression by forcing a gold seizure which was passed as law. Roosevelt then put into action the New Deal, whereby the U.S. would now be permanently bankrupted to the bankers, but the people would get social programs to take care of them, preventing a depression. Some would argue this also created the concept of dependency on the state, which is one of the key points of the Communist Manifesto. This is the origin of our modern social security or social insurance systems. While seeming to have the benefits of lifting us out of the Great Depression, the obligation to fulfill that benefit lasts to this very day.
Since the Federal Reserve directs interest rates and money supply, their influence allows control of the direction of the economy. They are independent from government oversight, are never allowed to be audited, set their own policy, and run the IRS to extract further wealth from the people in the form of income tax, which is discussed later in the film. It is in the newspaper from time to time. People are losing their farms. People are losing their homes because they're in debt to a bank. But what are they in debt for? There is no money. It doesn't exist. It's just a it's just a malicious game that's being played upon the people who live in this country. And if we wake up to it, the government should be in fear of the people, not us of them. The Federal Reserve was created by Congress in 1913, and it was entrusted with the power granted originally to the Congress by the U.S. Constitution to coin money and regulate the value thereof. This, figure, well, this is about Bernanke. This is about Bernanke. He has to be on that call. Forget the investors. The investors are going to do if Bernanke was sure Bernanke, Bernanke needs to open the discount window. That's how bad things are out there. Alan Greenspan told everyone to take a teaser rate and then raise the rate 17 times. And Bernanke is being an academic. It is no time to be an academic. It is time to get on the Bear Stearns call. Listen, open the darn Fed window. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. He has no idea. Kramer. I have talked to the heads of almost every single one of these firms in the last 72 hours, and he has no idea what it's like out there. None! And Bill Poole has no idea what it's like out there. My people have been in this game for 25 years, and they are losing their jobs, and these firms are going to go out of business, and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing. The Fed system is not good for the country or the world. They aren't even a government entity, but a private banking business with shareholders, which has been given agency status and legal authority by the United States. And even that fact of their legality is debatable. In summation, the Federal Reserve System is a giant fleecing of the American people and all people. By manipulating the money supply, causing inflation and deflation and perpetual debt, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, who help control the Fed, now use the same problem-reaction-solution scheme that created the Fed in many third-world countries. In order to exploit the people of these countries, banking interests support revolutions against the people and set up tin-pot dictators, loaning them heaps of money at exorbitant interest, and then confiscating land and resources of the country when the dictator inevitably defaults on the loan. Now it just says, and everybody can look at their bills today, and it says this note is legal tender. Well, it just means that uh, it's recognized by the government and that it's accepted for taxes. So that's why we believe it has value, but it's only our faith in it. As currency has moved away from being backed by precious metals to being backed by only nothing but faith, electronic currency has become popular not only as a way to keep the game running much further than it was originally designed, but as a means of tracking the flow of money in order to exercise even greater control over all financial transactions. So let's just look at it. First of all, the Federal Reserve is anything but federal. It's a privately owned organization. Okay, and if you think that your money's safe in a bank, let me tell you how it works. Let's say you have a hundred bucks in the bank, all right? We know you got more, but for this purpose, we'll say a hundred. Now, the bank only has to keep 10% of that. In other words, all the money that's in that bank, they have to have 10% on standby all the time. 
So they only really have to have 10 of your $100. So then the money they get comes from the Federal Reserve Banking System. And the Federal Reserve Banking System needs to have less than 10% of that. So your $100 is literally worth less than a dollar in hard currency. And in this country, we used to have a hard currency based on the gold. But what happened was they started to sell it off. People realized, hey, we can't sell off the gold or the money's not going to be worth anything. So what did they do? They started selling off secretly afterwards. And actually, in World Trade Center Building 7, there was a lot of um, investigative documents pertaining to the sale of the gold from the Federal Reserve. And that case has been washed away now because there's no more evidence. Kramer. I have not seen it like this since I went five bid for a half a million shares of Citigroup when I got hit in 1990. This is a different kind of market. And the Fed is asleep. Okay, but here's the thing. Bill Poole is a shame. He's shameful. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I know he you're gotta go and read the accredited home document. At least I read the darn thing. Well, hold on, I know you're passionate, and I hear you. But 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 at the same time, a lot of people are saying this is yes. It, there's certain types of mortgages that aren't available. There are you there can't are all get sorts it, of issues. Loan but to get go out rich and like say, me. but Kramer, but Kramer, if he did what you said, which seems to me from the way cut you the just explained yourself, cut, cut it, the, cut the rate, open the discount window, okay, cut the rate. We'll leave the pressure and cuts rate. We'll leave the pressure. You're gonna have. That's going to cause Armageddon. No, we have Armageddon. I wouldn't try to cause it. We get, we have Armageddon. In the fixed income markets, we have Armageddon. No, but that's not we what they say. We have Armageddon. They say even when you, when I've talked to a couple of banks, they, they don't rate, say it's Armageddon. Well, who they I, say it's repricing. They're very firm about oh, that. Oh, great. Now. Okay, well, let them be calm and then have them call me on the way home like they do every night and tell me, Kramer, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to help us? Are you going to help us? Are you going to stand on the sideline like everybody else and say that it's fine? Will somebody come on TV and tell the truth about how bad it is? But a lot of people say, these same people say, it's not Ben Bernanke and the rate that matters. The bond market That's now wrong. is completely it is the separate rate. from It's the entirely the The bond rate. market is trading no, separately it's entirely the rate. rate. We, look, we'll, we'll spend billions in Iraq to build homes. We are going to have thousands of people. We have thousands of people losing yes. their homes right now. 14 million people took a mortgage in the last three years. 7 million of them took teaser rates or took piggyback rates. Mm-hmm. They will lose their homes. This is crazy. Yes. I am sorry to be upset about it, but you have to understand what they're saying to me off the record before I come in here every night and every day. And what I hear from these blowhard managers who act like it's call someone for heaven's sake. Go call someone. I worked at fixed income at Goldman Sachs. This is not the time to be complacent. Unfortunately, I know too many people and I'm too darn old. The banksters seek to further centralize, consolidate, and own as much as they can on this planet. And they will not stop seeking new ways to guide and control us, corralling us into narrower fields of choice, dumbing us down, and attempting to remove our humanity from us. Literally. Give me the power to issue a nation's currency, and I care not who writes its laws. Money as paper is a problem because it has no intrinsic value, only the faith of the people and the credit of that country. Today's money is called legal tender, which is a paper fiat currency. Fiat meaning no thing or worthless. When a sheet of hundred dollar bills is printed, the sheet of paper might cost a few cents. With the government printing paper money, it can just issue it interest-free, and as long as it doesn't print too much, or keeps its value pegged to its gold reserves, then the currency can maintain a perceived value with the people. 
Central banks, however, loan a sheet of 50 bills with the number 100 on them to the U.S. for $5,000 plus interest, and 50 bills with the number 20 on them for $1,000 plus interest. The cost of a sheet is about 40 cents. Do you see a problem with this scenario? Every $100 bill which the Federal Reserve System prints and is sold to the United States at full face value represents a $100 loan. Even though the government pays for it, they still pay interest. Whoever's making the money, like actually printing the money, they're the guys that have the control. And it looks like to me like that's a, a centralized group of people and you know, all the evidence would point to that. It's the fundamental thing that our country really can't become a great country without conflict until it gets control of printing its own money. The government should create, issue, and circulate all the currency and credit needed to satisfy the spending power of the government and the buying power of consumers. The privilege of creating and issuing money is not only the supreme prerogative of the government, but is the government's greatest creative opportunity. By the adoption of these principles, the long-felt want for a uniform medium will be satisfied. The taxpayers will be saved immense sums of interest, discounts, and exchanges. The financing of all public enterprises, the maintenance of stable government and order progress, and the conduct of the Treasury will become matters of practical administration. The people can and will be furnished with a currency as safe as their own government. Money will cease to be the master and become the servant of humanity. Democracy will rise superior to the money power. Fundamentally, we need to say, hey, listen, <laughs> if you're going to be our government, you're not borrowing money to exist. You're going to print your own money at cost, and you're going to give it to us at, what, 2 2 3% interest? That should be it, or none. We just have to pay back what we owe. Probably okay with about 10% of it. I mean, obviously we need centralized, uh, at least in Canada, we need a centralized service for certain things. You know, if the post office, that's fine. I don't mind the post office. And I, I think the, you know, the government should be making money. The government should be making money. <laughs> the, the backing for our financial system in this country, the backing for our money is our resources, human and natural. It's people and it's, 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 it's what's under the ground, it's the water, it's the air, it's everything. And uh, uh, people have to understand that their resource, themselves as human beings as resources, educated, healthy people, that's a measure, that's a resource that's actually never quantified in our, uh, when the government works out the value of what our country is worth. Those, those aspects of the as a resource are extremely valuable. You never have, we should be quantifying it and we have to realize we never pay that back. Money we put out for education, money we put out for health, we don't have to worry about getting it paid back because it returns to us by the contribution that the human being makes as a result of being educated and healthy. Those are very important concepts. The problem is, in order to, in order to prevent us from printing our own currency, the central bankers, who basically can print money at will, have bought everybody and bought everything. They've bought the universities, they've bought the media, they've bought the corporations. So our whole society is run by these foreign private bankers who are trying to protect their golden goose and trying to prevent us from realizing that we're paying them money for nothing, for something we could be doing for ourselves. 
But with major lenders, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, on apparently shaky ground, the top government officials charged with protecting the economy are discussing their options. But as you might suspect, they haven't come up with anything close to a solution for the problems facing homeowners. And this administration continues to insist that lenders are not in a crisis. Kitty Pilgrim has the report. President Bush, flanked by Secretary Paulson and Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, tried to calm fears about financial stability of the country's two largest mortgage finance companies, which own or guarantee about half of U.S. mortgages. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are, uh, are very important institutions. We spent a fair amount of time discussing these institutions. Uh, and he assured me that he and um, Ben Bernanke are... We'll be working this issue very hard. The mortgage default rate has risen so high, Wall Street investors are in turmoil over what may come next. Even Secretary Paulson admitting this week many of today's unusually high number of foreclosures are not preventable, putting the estimated number for this year at 2.5 million. Banking analysts estimate it's higher, running some 8,000 a day. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill have been locked in a partisan stalemate for months over foreclosure relief legislation. But at best, the Congressional Budget Office estimates those measures would help only 500,000 homeowners. Some economists say the mortgage crisis isn't over. We have a housing bubble that's burst. Maybe 60% of it has burst, but that still leaves a long way to go. And that's got to hit uh, consumer spending a lot more. But Senator Chris Dodd, chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, saying today the two largest mortgage lenders were fundamentally sound and strong. There is a, a sort of a panic going on uh, today, and that's that's not what ought to be. The facts don't warrant that reaction, in my view. Senator Dodd said Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are adequately capitalized and mostly held 30-year fixed mortgages and not risky subprime lending. Now, mortgage rescue legislation passed late this evening in the Senate by 63 to 5. Still faces a big battle. The House has to make changes in the legislation next week. Now, Congress promised to pass this measure before the August recess. That holds pretty little comfort because they also promised to pass it before July 4th, Lou. Well, in this, in this situation, let's go with the good news for crying out loud. At least the Senate did pass it finally. Uh, and uh, I can't imagine the House failing to at least provide some help. Uh, the question is, uh, to what degree that help will arrive in time for, for literally now millions of homeowners facing uh, foreclosure. There has been a large yet subtle transition from what we believe our country stands for, how they're governed and ruled, and how the rights of the citizens are respected, to what is in reality an invisible oligarchy, in place due to the illusions we have been duped into believing, marketing to us every day about how great things are, how great the system works, and how there's no need to change anything major. For the creators of this system, it means our perpetual ignorance and their perpetual profit and control. Even our law system, the traditional mechanism of solving disputes, has been usurped and replaced from what it used to be with nary so much as a whimper or complaint. The people and families who have dominated the major industries of finance, steel, oil, and other darker pursuits, like drugs and slavery, seek to gain control over all humanity through their cartel capitalism ideology, wherein corporate interests, beholden to a central currency influence, control all political process, the creation of acts and statutes, and enforcement against the people. 
The financing and planning of these centralized continental unions, like the European Union, North American Union, African and Pan-Asian unions, and the single currencies planned for each, are just steps forward in a centuries-old plan to bring about a world government. These interests have had total control of our currency system for almost 100 years, and are essentially using our energy and our labor to not only profit for themselves, but to further fund and contribute to their plans, and our further enslavement. It's important to gain a succinct analysis of the multi-tendril beast our system has become, as well as the various facets of control used by these elite families, including the military and drug wars. It is also imperative to note how the money system has taken root in the last 100 years and delve with great detail into the motivations and structures of financial leveraging that have been used to build up this illusory glass prison of credit and debt around humanity. Until we break out of our trapped understanding of how money works and how it is actually created, we will be slaves to the bankers, even with an invisible yoke. The solutions will come from our understanding and the positive choices we make when voting with our dollars. Plus, understanding how the creation of money is used in today's society to trick us into giving up more energy than we receive in exchange. To further your understanding of how money works and learn about the history of money, visit thecauseofeffect.com for further information and connect yourself to solutions. You can find solutions in your awareness, and by providing awareness to others about how currency and monetary scams are used by central banks, and also by researching the subjects of money creation, currency printing, national debts, central banks, tax-exempt foundations, the Federal Reserve System, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. but coming face-to-face with a conspiracy so monstrous he can't believe it exists. The law is whatever the powers that be and power happen to say it is today. Whatever they say it is, that's what the law is today. And it may change tomorrow. As people started to live together in societies, there was nothing to prevent individuals from infringing upon the rights and freedoms of each other. Once that happened, there were only two choices. Either protect ourselves, or elect a group of individuals to protect our rights for us. We chose the latter, and thus, law was born to protect our rights and freedoms. We have no law in America. And understand that. There's a Roman maximum in law that says... For he that would be deceived, let him. Simply meaning, if you are so ignorant as to be deceived, then that's your business, that's your problem. So you need to do your homework and find out what the words mean, especially in relation to law and government. Because there is a whole a world of occultism that is operating today throughout the world in which you use certain words, and when those words are used in a court, they don't mean the same thing at all. 
Jordan Maxwell speaks about words. Um, words are definitely his forte. He also speaks about where words come from. Understanding law and the words of law, there are two things that this planet has. Water and earth, water and land. Consequently, there are two kinds of law, the law of the land and the law of water. You've heard the term law of the land, but in point of fact, that's precisely what this word means, law of the land because it is the people who live on land and that is opposed to something else called the law of the high seas or the law of water you need to understand the difference the law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on the land and so consequently the law of the land is different in every country you can do things in america you can't do in russia you can do things in Africa you can't do in England. So the law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on that particular land. However, there is a higher law that dominates the entire world. It's called the law of the water, or the law of the high seas. The law of water is referred to as the law of money. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, or where you live. Money is money. And any time you're doing banking or using money, you are now under the law of water, maritime admiralty. In the film, The Occult World of Commerce, Jordan Maxwell and Jason Whitney give a great overview explaining in depth the important differences between the two law systems, how they were merged, and how this affects how we live today. Countries' laws end at the borders of their land. It's also known as common law, the law of the common people. A proper English common law was originally based on the Ten Commandments section of the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, but it's also considered to be common sense law. The common law that's developed over time has but one purpose. That sole purpose is to protect our fundamental rights and freedoms of life, liberty, and property. The purpose of law was never to restrict or destroy our rights and freedoms, its sole purpose, then and now, is for the preservation and protection of these gifts. There are two different kinds of law. There is civil law, which is the law of the land, and there is UCC, which is maritime law. UCC stands for Uniformed Commercial Code, which was created thousands of years ago by the Phoenician Canaanites. Marine law, or the law of water, is the law of money, or currency, it is the law that governs all money in the world, and is the same type of law in every country with a central bank. It is also known as commercial law, covering all forms of commerce. You may not have heard of the Uniform Commercial Code, or the UCC, but it is the foundation of how all modern financial transactions are handled, and while very complex, understanding it gives a great insight as to how the banking game is played. The entities who created the system understood that they could not control you, the flesh and blood you, but if they turned you into a corporation under the UCC law, then they would effectively be able to have that control. 
Because the government created a situation when we're in perpetual debt, but that is unlawful. So they also gave us a remedy, a solution to fix it, but they hid it from us. Whenever we're dealing in a business, then you, all countries and all corporations, work under UCC. Throughout history, law has been corrupted and used in many ways it was never intended to be used. Laws have also been created to control and enslave people for the sole benefit of those in power. Before the implementation of marine law, which was layered to exist over our already existing common law, in the United States of America, people were called sovereigns. That is, you were your own country. You were considered a soul, created by God, and you were born and owned your own body. Instead of a first and a last name, like you have today, you had what was called a Christian and family name. Not only did you own your own body, but you were completely responsible for it. You could use any substance you wished to your own benefit or peril. If two men consented to having a gunfight in the streets, to the death, it was their right as long as it was consensual. The sheriff would stand by to make sure no innocents got injured in what was a perfectly legal duel. Self-responsibility was the order of the day, which was either a blessing or a curse to the people. Common law ruled the land. Treat others the way you want to be treated. The real golden rule. Now, under common law, all interactions with your fellow man were and are some form of contract and consent. There were fewer layers of law in existence before the merging of common and marine law. And so, for example, there was no such thing as fraud, because as a sovereign who was personally responsible, at any time you could have said no. People had to be more diligent in who they dealt with, and thus, as reputation was actually considered important, people would try and honor their contracts and earn an honest living, using the court systems only for criminal prosecutions or contract disputes. Simpler times back then indeed, but also more primitive as well. Perhaps we're learning to say no again. And if you look at the whole entire picture, the government is only your representative and representatives of your neighbors. So who are they to demand that you get a license in order to engage in an action which is fundamentally lawful? If we don't make a stand, I mean, the, the reason that these guys have the power they have is because we don't say anything. It's this whole tacit agreement thing. And, you know, because we didn't stand up and make claims to stop the, the authorities from doing what they do, they've just sort of taken over. And so we're all running scared because we don't realize that all we have to do is say no. understand there's legal and lawful and there's illegal and unlawful. Legal means you are operating correctly by the form or by the letter of the law. Uh, lawfully tends to speak to the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law.
if people really understood what's going on, um, we're, we're too used to the rights we've had. We, it wouldn't be tolerated. If people really truly understood what was going on, there would be a, a major political reaction, and the people that are in power right now would not be there. And they don't want that. They don't want to take the chance. And that's what people have to understand, that there still is this vestige of democracy here, and we still should be extra exercising it before the police state apparatus descends that doesn't really and truly removes from us uh, the capacity to take control of our destiny. The founding fathers of the United States desired people to have the right to life, liberty, and property, along with the free will to enjoy them and the responsibility to respect the rights of others. After fighting their revolution for freedom from colonialism, the founders were intelligent enough to retain a healthy fear of the similar threats posed by corporate power and wisely limited corporations exclusively to a business role. In the United States of America, up until around the mid to late 1800s, in order to create a company or corporation, you would have to go through the arduous process of earning a charter from a particular state, which was both limited in duration and function, needing to be renewed, but also subject to rules, regulations, and heavy taxes. They were also mandated to serve the public interest, with profit being the result to shareholders who were part of the public. If they exceeded their authority, when against their charter, or when against the public interest, a corporation's charter could be revoked, rendering it invalid, and essentially destroying it in the legal sense. The concept of corporate personhood came about around this time, which quickly gained popularity with business leaders. Discussed and dissected at length in the brilliant film The Corporation, corporate personhood is the act of giving a company, which is a legal corporation or entity, the privileges of a regular human person, such as the ability to own property, hold assets, contribute to politics, or influence legislation. With this change in the law, the corporation had gained legal status along with rights and duties, becoming an artificial person. A sovereign individual is a human who is no longer a corporation, thus no longer being ascribed by certain duties and rights. What I uncovered was that when a person is registered uh, from birth, it's at that point in time that they are actually being created or that a legal person is being created and associated with them. And it's kind of like it's at that point where you join a club and when you join this club, you're given, say, a membership card. The card itself would be your person as opposed to the human being who is a, the member of the club. Person is, even in, in English, person is a persona. So it's not really you, it's something that you're creating. So, you know, from English to law, it means the same thing. It's an entity, it's something that you create or somebody else creates and you give power to. Because we're all equal, nobody has a right to govern you without your consent. So they, re they require evidence that you have consented to this. The person is that evidence, that card or the... Uh, say uh, your identification which would identify you as a person all of this is what they need to see so that they know that they do have the right to act upon you
After the U.S. Civil War in 1868, a corporation was created by members of the Bank of England called United States Company. The owners of this company decided that the employees of the United States would not be called employees, but citizens. To run this corporation would be a board of directors called the United States Government, and they would have a president just like any company. They would also have a constitution just like the Republic called America. And people who signed up to be employee citizens would be given political and legal rights, like voting and owning land. I think they did it when they got everyone to become a government employee, and then that's this way where normally they would be our servants, and we would be in charge of them. They tricked us all into getting social insurance numbers. These numbers identify us as a government employee. We're receiving benefits, as they call them, and therefore we are bound by the rules that bind all government employees. And so they've tricked us. We're a nation of people employed by the government, bound by the rules that the government makes, but only because we are employed by them. However, there is a grand distinction between the United States Corporation, which is a company, and the United States of America, which is the geographical location and country. Today we live in a world where we are sold on the notion that our fundamental rights still exist, but there are times when we must wonder if this is true. For example, we can have the full force of the law brought down upon us over a traffic violation, income tax irregularity, refusing to fill in a census form, even growing or using natural substances. These offenses do no harm to another human being and in no way violate any individual's fundamental rights and freedoms. So we must ask, how did things get like this? The answer is that your fundamental rights and freedoms are still intact as a natural person, but you've been tricked into believing that you have to follow the laws created for the corporate artificial persons. This deception has only grown over the last 140 years. Some argue this period in history was the seed of what has grown into today's expansive modern legal system. Others believe that this was the beginning of the end for the great experiment known as the Republic of the United States of America. As a human being, you have guaranteed unalienable human rights. By virtue of existing and being what is known as a child of God, whatever religion you may or may not subscribe to, your rights come from the concept that you are a result of divine creation. This is supported by documents throughout history, like the Magna Carta, UN Declaration of Human Rights, various constitutions, bills of rights, and charters of rights and freedoms of different countries. Unalienable or unalienable rights, as in, no one can place a lien on your rights; they are yours to use freely. The most fundamental thing that I've learned through all this.、Um, Is that they they speak English, but it's a whole other language coming out of their mouth, and、uh, hence lawyers spending eight years or whatever it takes to become a lawyer. They're trying to go and understand what the words and how this thing works. If you try and speak to them in English or any other language, they they won't be able to engage with you. You need to use their documents, and the reason why you need to use their documents is because you are. Within the corporation. Well, they certainly don't teach you about what the law is about. They, 
and uh, a lot of times there seems to be a, a more of a, a societal or a community conditioning where people that at 16 they go and they get they, their driver's license and it's a big deal for them and yet they never ask themselves first do I really need a driver's license in order to exercise rights uh, they get a social insurance number because they want to work legally in Canada but yet they never study and understand the difference between say a contract for service and a contract for hire uh, so they're to a large degree, they don't really teach much. It's almost more of a conditioning program that conditions you to believe certain falsehoods. If you don't know your rights, you don't have any. And if you have to ask someone else what your rights are, you've just given them the power to tell you what your rights are. Boiling the Frog, or Tiptoe Totalitarianism. Oh, but how to get rid of these unalienable human rights that stand in the way of a monopolistic, elitist oligarchy of complete and utter tyranny? If you're seeking to instill total control in a society, then the only way to achieve that is to dumb down an educated populace, making them forget about their rights, or even better, to not even care about them. Of course, you cannot take away all the rights of a person in one fell swoop but must instead boil the frog. Huh? Try putting a frog in already boiling water. Watch it jump out instantly, because it can't stand the heat. The only way to boil a frog is to place it in lukewarm water in your pot on the stove, and slowly turn up the heat. The frog will stay comfortable, not noticing the gradual increase in temperature, and will stay into the pot even until it boils to death. This is the way that our freedoms and our rights are being suppressed and outlawed, one at a time, little by little. Tiptoe totalitarianism. If we don't notice it happening, it can't be happening. Some of the most sinister elements of this grand deception pass by so slowly and are so interwoven into the fabric of our system that some people just cannot accept that these elements might have actually been designed to enslave us. Because we do not know the true meaning of the occult in relation to law and religion, it is very difficult for the typical person, typical educated person, to, to understand how everything intercorrelates. I, th I think it's less about plugging into the system than it is about having an easy existence where you don't have to think and take responsibility so much. You're just going along with the herd and it's easier to do. But it then allows them to claim the right to, you know, half your money, half your life, essentially. The heart of the grand deception, keeping us mired in the world of money, is keeping from us all the fact that almost every country operates with the artificial and natural person merged together as one. That means humans are being given the rights of corporations, i.e. no human rights, and artificial corporate persons are being given the rights and privileges of natural persons, more and more so. And the ones aware of this are profiting from it in a multitude of ways. The main schemes of control involve and depend on us being ignorant of our rights. Ignorant of the contracts we're presented, and ignorant of our consent to these contracts every time we sign any form presented to us.
One of the key aspects of creating a document, especially a legal one, is that you need words. Words in common use have their usual everyday dictionary definition. However, in law, words are defined to have a very precise meaning. No words in law are ever used accidentally. They were always defined either by legal dictionary, court ruling, or most commonly, within the definition section of an act or statute. Would you find it interesting to know that words can be redefined within a law or contract to give a word in the body of that law or contract a completely different definition or meaning, and that if you don't read the fine print or check the definition, you may just be surrendering your rights or property to whomever has authored that law or contract? The film Bursting Bubbles of Government Deception illustrates how many of these deceptions are perpetuated by our ignorance. Breaking the government down into people who use words on pieces of paper to make other people do things, the film discusses some of the etymology and definitions of important words in the legal system. Well, application and registration and submission are pretty much the three words that they use uh, along with the word must to get all, your, all their authority over you. Uh, the, the word application means to beg. Uh, and it is assumed that he who begs knows exactly what he's begging for. They know what they're receiving. They have acknowledged the authority to grant, and if it doesn't exist, they're willing to create it by transference, and they're doing it entirely voluntarily. No one can ever be bound to beg. The word submission again implies a voluntary action because it means to agree to bend to another's will, and the agreement in, it is in itself must be voluntary or to abandon to someone else's discretion, or to leave to someone else's discretion, and that's a form of abandonment, and again, that has to be a, a voluntary choice. And the other one, registration historically, was the act of a ship's captain, who would sign over his ship and all chattel contents to the harbor master for safekeeping. Uh, and so when you do register property with the government, essentially what you're doing is signing it over to them. For example, you register your car with your state or province, giving them the deed of true ownership, while keeping the equitable title for yourself. Remember, the true owner, the registrar, has the deed. The legal owner, the registrant, is owner only in title. You may now enjoy and use the car, but a registered vehicle is required by law to be insured in most states and provinces, and a registered vehicle is also only legally operable by a person holding a valid driver's license. So, if only registered vehicles require licenses and insurance, does that mean unregistered vehicles are not bound by the statutes and acts that govern these things? When pressed with these questions, desiring clarification, the government often responds with form letters, non-answers, and sometimes even hostility. One thing they do not respond with is a clear answer. Business as usual, some might say. But it seems they are not happy with just the registration of our material property. It appears they own our bodies as well. In the early 1900s, 
Colonel Edward Mandel House had this to say in a private meeting with President Woodrow Wilson. Soon every American will be required to register their biological property in a national system designed to keep track of the people and that will operate under the ancient system of pledging. By such methodology, we can compel people to submit to our agenda, which will affect our security as a chargeback for our fiat paper currency. Every American will be forced to register or suffer being unable to work and earn a living. They will be our chattel, and we will hold their security interest over them forever by operation of the law merchant under the scheme of secured transactions. Americans, by unknowingly or unwittingly delivering the bill of ladings to us, will be rendered bankrupt and insolvent, forever to remain economic slaves through taxation, secured by their own pledges. They will be stripped of their rights and given a commercial value designed to make us a profit, and they will be none the wiser. For not one man in a million could ever figure out our plans, and if by accident one or two should figure it out, we have in our arsenal plausible deniability. After all, this is the only logical way to fund government, by floating liens and debt to the registrants in the form of benefits and privileges. This will inevitably reap to us huge profits beyond our wildest expectations and leave every American a contributor to this fraud which we will call social insurance. Without realizing it, every American will insure us for any loss we may incur and in this manner, every American will unknowingly be our servant, however begrudgingly. The people will become helpless and without any hope for their redemption and we will employ the high office of the president of our dummy corporation to foment this plot against America. Huh? What this means in as plain English as we can describe is that American citizens, along with Canadians, Britons, French, and every other country that has a central banking system and social network, these people are registered at birth as chattel property. Chattel property is property held as collateral for something. In this case, the registered citizens are being held as chattel property to float bonds for government loans that add to the national debt. Our income tax is the only method by which the national debt is repaid, and our apparent obligation to pay this particular tax comes from being born into this debtor-creditor position. How can this be done to us if we are humans with unalienable rights? Simple. No one has ever made you do anything. We do it to ourselves. Now wait a second. What I mean is that every time we consent to submitting an application for registration, we are giving up a huge amount of rights in return for supposed benefits. Now, Upon further research, you'll find that the concept of the corporate person has been reversed and we are now being treated as the corporations, as non-living persons with no emotions, no rights, and no humanity. No longer are we actually the persons. The concept of natural and artificial person is connected now through a joinder when we interact with any agency residing in the Admiralty Marine Law jurisdiction. How it works is like this. You're considered Admiralty Law chattel product which is delivered by a doctor who issues a certificate of live birth for the product. Because from the banker's point of view, each birth, each product, has a dollar value.
Your parents are told that it is the law to register your birth with the government. When they do this, they are abandoning their baby under admiralty law, whereby the government then picks you up as a maritime salvage and creates a company, a straw man corporation, or a fictional entity that has the exact same name as the baby, only spelled in all capital letters. This company is your artificial person. When you interact with police, government, and agencies, by using the name of your company, thinking you're using your own given name, you unknowingly give up your human rights by creating a joinder between yourself and the corporation. You are volunteering to say, I am not acting as a human, I am acting as a corporation. You aren't a person. You have a person. Later on in life, when you apply with any corporation, including the government, to get a license, file taxes, get a mortgage, open an account, or even vote, it is not you, the human being, who is being given these things, or the human plugging into these things. But in fact, it's your corporate straw man acting on your behalf. New entities are being created with different titles depending on the version of the corporate straw man that's being used. For instance, your person that is licensed to drive, as defined by the legal system, is a driver. Someone who creates a bank account has created a company called a customer. A voter who registers to vote in any election has created a company called a voter. And anyone who applies for social security or social insurance or ever files a tax return has created a corporate entity with the same name as him or herself, only in all capital letters, and this corporate person is called a taxpayer. As Edward Mandel House said, the elites would make it hard if not impossible to work legally and thus earn a living unless people registered their biological property and submitted to the social insurance scheme. The number given to citizens as a social insurance number or a social security number is used to track where you work, how much you earn, and how many benefits you've earned. How sad that we would give up so many freedoms in return for a few paltry benefits. Of course, the system was not designed to last or to support ever-growing numbers of people who would need support. Ask anyone on a pension if it's what they've expected or sincerely question whether your retirement savings are actually going to be there when you retire. At any time, the banks can just close you off from your money, and since they own the Senate, the House, the judges, the lawyers, and the policymakers, good luck with your recourse. Slavery is the legal fiction that a person is property. Corporate personhood is the legal fiction that property is a person. American patriot Aaron Russo, who passed away earlier this year, created a brilliant film called America, Freedom to Fascism, which really explored the origins of the income tax in the United States, even interviewing Sheldon Cohen, the old IRS commissioner and a contributor to the IRS tax code. The premise of the film is that there is no actual law that exists that requires the average American citizen to pay tax on his labor or wages. 
Citing Supreme Court cases where income was defined as capital gains or profits arising from corporate activities. So I call Sheldon Cohen because he used to be the IRS commissioner. He wrote the tax code and he was also general counsel to the IRS. He is a true expert and I couldn't find a better person to answer my questions. So can the government criminally prosecute somebody of information put on their 1040? Yes. Right, so doesn't that violate the Fifth Amendment? No. Uh, but the Fifth Amendment says I, I, I don't have to do anything that incriminates myself. Well, it doesn't incriminate you to put, to put but, your income down. But you said before I could be put in jail for it. Title 26 requires you to file a return. But doesn't Title 26 have to be in compliance with the Supreme Court decisions? You're going to take a 1920 case and superimpose it on the whole Internal Revenue Code that was written after it? No, that's not... I can't believe what I just heard. Rewind. <laughs> You're going to take a 1920 case and superimpose it on the whole Internal Revenue Code that was written after it? No, that's not... Remember he said earlier the Internal Revenue Code was authorized by the 16th Amendment? The Internal Revenue Code is authorized by the 16th Amendment. Remember, the Supreme Court said the 16th Amendment did not give the government any new taxing power. These decisions have never been overturned. Let's listen further. Can the lower courts overrule the Supreme Court? No. How are they putting people in jail today for not paying a tax on their labor when the Supreme Court said they don't have to? Doesn't the IRS code have to be in compliance with the Supreme Court? That's my Aaron, question. This is a waste of time. Well, let me because just... whatever I say, you're not going to believe. He's right. I don't believe him. And neither should you. He wants us to believe we should obey the IRS code, which is being enforced in violation of the many Supreme Court decisions. If no, the no, Supreme no, no, Court no. made a decision... Thank you, thank you, Aaron. I think we're finished. I'm sorry, Mr. Cohen, you're doing that. Well, I'm sorry that you, you constantly re-argue the point. You're liable because the law says that you're liable, but and the courts say the law says you're liable, and that's why you're liable. You see, he's talking about the lower courts, who are not in compliance with the Supreme Court, as they have to be. Doesn't the court have to be in compliance with the Supreme Court? The Supreme Court has so held. Where? You caught me unprepared. I'll come back. I don't want to do that. But let, let me ask you a hypothetical question. No. You're making silly arguments here. Why is the Supreme Court decision a silly argument? Be well, because it's inapplicable. That made my heart stop. He just said Supreme Court decisions do not apply to the IRS. That's the behavior you would expect from a totalitarian country, maybe China or Russia or Cuba. Not from America. They're just making up the law as they go along. Now I knew the tax honesty movement was right. The IRS thrives on intimidation and fear, not by law. It's no different than a criminal protection racket using force to extract your money from you. Then the former IRS commissioner, now working at a prestigious Washington law firm, threatens me. Watch. Aaron, you understand Yiddish. Cornish to help you. For those of you who don't understand Yiddish, that means nothing will help you. We are still a slave to the money. And that means every man, woman, and child who pays income tax is a slave. Thus, the argument of the film is that the income tax is unconstitutional, which it very well may be, especially if the 16th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was never properly ratified. However, 
claims that income tax is illegal may be wrong when you realize that the system depends on all human beings signing up to act as taxpayer corporations and thereby accept tax liabilities. The law is purposely complicated to thwart investigation by the layman and protect the integrity of a system that is built upon quicksand. Canada is in the same boat, where the country's income tax is a 2,000-plus page monstrosity, complicated to the point of causing an aneurysm. Both the United States and Canadian law, and probably a lot of other countries as well, specify in their income tax laws that all government employees are income taxable in order to help pay for government. That is why you must pay. As a citizen, you are a government employee. The main deception comes from layering the law that allows collecting of regular corporate income tax from actual companies and then applying that law to collect tax from the citizen who is ignorant of his or her employee status. Maybe it's just a way to keep us, keep us in a climate of fear and, and keep our minds off the fact that uh, central bankers run everything, run the mass media, run the education system, and they were not, we are not really free. We are free in that people like you and I can say what we want, but we will never get heard beyond a limited audience. We'll never get, a, never get paid like, for doing what we're doing. I'm not paid, you're not paid. Why do you think you've been able to get away with not paying or filing your income taxes for so long? Well, first of all, I've not gotten away with anything. I'm not hiding from anyone. I'm simply asking the IRS to show me the laws that apparently require me to do these things, and they are suspiciously reticent to answer questions from me, and of course there are millions of other people uh, many other organizations who have attempted to get answers, they act very suspiciously when asked to simply sit down at the table with the American people and discuss what their obligations are. Right. Rather than pulling up a chair, they pull out a club. Because our country is bankrupt, and if you don't believe me, why do we have a receiver general? If we're in receivership, our country's in receivership, so what they do is they take all our income tax money, every dime of it, forward it to the United Nations, the United Nations forwards it to the IMF, International Monetary Fund, and then they will back our ability to work against Canada's ability to pay through our labors, because they get it first, and then they go to the Bank of Canada and say, okay, Canada can borrow money again. And they track all this by our uh, SIN number, birth certificate number, and we also have a bond number. At the same time, many of the most wealthy and well-known corporate brand companies set up shell and holding companies in countries with tax shelters and hold billions in assets, avoiding the legal corporate income tax in a maze of hierarchical company ownerships and stock percentage manipulations. Some licensed citizens even change their residency to other low-tax countries and then just live as a human in the United States or Canada, making millions, if not billions, of dollars of low-tax or tax-free money running their business through this country. The argument for abolishing the income tax makes sense when you consider the following. The income tax provides for not one service in government. Not one wage, school, road, hospital, salary, or program is paid for by the income tax. The roads are paid for by gas taxes. Education is paid for by property taxes. The military is paid for by legal corporate income tax. 
Hospitals and healthcare are paid for by lotteries and excise taxes on alcohol and cigarettes. City infrastructure is paid for by violation tickets, fines, and fees. The goods and service tax, along with provincial and state taxes, pay for the majority of other services we enjoy. And so they should, as they are mandatory taxes applied to almost everything we buy. Income tax, however, applies only to paying the interest on the national debt, nothing else. The debt never goes down, and some people wonder why income tax feels like perpetual slavery. It literally is. Think about it. Money not paid to the government is income tax, where it subsequently goes to private bankers as profit, will inevitably be spent on some sort of good or service that will still be taxed. So it's not as if removing income tax, allowing us all to earn and keep more money, and abolishing the national debt would wreck our nations. If anything, they could become prosperous once more. However, if we like the concept of half the wealth being owned by less than 1% of the population, I guess we'll just have to keep things the way they are. Thankfully, there are groups who are not only trying to educate people of these legal shenanigans, but are actively in court themselves, advocating, defending, and letter writing. Around the world today, many activist groups have been popping up. A lot of these have been focusing specifically on the freedom movement, such as Canada's Think Free organization, and also the Elizabeth Ann Elaine Society, who are advocating going back to sovereignty status, firing the government, and becoming what is recognized as a free man on the land, a designation whereby an individual is recognized no longer as a person in law or a natural person, but a free human living on land, not bound by any act or statute, nor any governing body or corporate entity. Robert Arthur Menard explains how he went through the process. In my research, I found that people used to use notices of understanding and intent and claims of right all the time. If there was a conflict, if they wanted to avoid conflict or ensure that if there was a conflict, they came out on top, they would serve what was called the notice of understanding and intent and then the claim of right. Uh, you do that now with the government. You create a, a document that expresses your understanding, expresses your intent, what your actions are and then you claim the right to do that, you go through the notarial process and you serve notice to them and you give them a chance to dispute. If they don't dispute, then the notary crafts a document saying they were served, they had a chance to dispute, they didn't, he wins. So it's a very simple process. It's as easy as saying to the host of a house, hey buddy, uh, it's time for me to leave, I'm leaving, have a good day. And totally eliminate the, the corporate rule and get back to rule by the people who are prepared to change our system so that there's an accountability that goes right back to the people where people can even recall their MPs if they don't do as, as they promised to do. And a whole restructuring of the apparatus of government, the officials and the bureaucrats who work in there who right now uh, are accountable and, and serve the interests of the uh, corporate elite rather than the interests of the, of the people, of the people of Canada. Not the government of Canada, but the people of Canada. We're, we should go back to requiring them to take an oath of allegiance to serve the common good of the and to do their public duty. Those are things that can be done and should be done. And so it's, uh, it's a question of, of getting back in and taking control and reasserting ourselves. It can be done. 
There's there's many solutions in commerce. Uh, there's many movies that offer even much better solutions than that. But the bottom line is we got to stop printing money at debt because what's it cost to print a piece of paper? Now, though there are no silver bullets to defeating an entity as large as the governing corporate system, knowing your human rights and being aware of the mechanisms through which others try and control you can help prevent your consent from being obtained due to ignorance. It's a good idea to always question when somebody wants you to sign something. You never know when it may come back to bite you in the ass. Using money and commerce law as a one-two punch against the vast majority of us who lack understanding due to our ignorance is a practice that has existed for centuries. As our collective human capacity for intelligence and understanding increases, so too does the complexity of both the monetary system and the legal system. It is now at the point where, inside a court, the judge will claim the power to render irrelevant any and all arguments put forth by any person choosing to appear in court. We are operating under a de facto system. However, there are those who are taking the time to do their homework and research how to speak back in this foreign legalese language. The results have been mixed, but incredibly interesting to say the least. The important thing to remember is that these are supposed to be our servants, and they have just tricked us into thinking we work for them. We must remember who we are and who we are not whenever we interact with any facet of the system, because if enough of us collectively remember and educate, then the system changes with that expansion of awareness. We, the people, have the power to affect mass positive change. But we must communicate and take the time to understand and become aware of what is really going on around us. We have been conditioned to fear going to court, fear encounters with any officer or any agency of the government, to fear what this person might do or fear what the planet might do. We even fear letters that we receive in the mail. We cannot live this way anymore because we are being bullied into a permanent control system. It appears that law is one area where these controlling elites are especially vulnerable to an educated public. It could be the avenue where we the people truly regain our human rights and freedoms. Be sure to visit thecauseofeffect.com to watch free videos about income tax and court victories, as there are actually many successes, but they get no mainstream media coverage. These free videos are not easy to find otherwise, as the elites want you to feel you have no chance of winning, and that they have a 100% successful conviction rate against tax protesters. Both of their claims are patently false. The events going on in the world today, believe it or not, are directly connected to the subjects we have covered so far in this film. We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subjected to the lights of publicity during those years. 
the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in the past centuries. Skull and Bones dates to 1832. It was, in fact, a reaction to a secret society, the Masons, then much more influential than they are today. Founder William Huntington Russell thought of his little conclave as sort of anti-Masons, and as a home for the wealthy and the powerful and the people who would do anything for another Bonesman. George Herbert Walker Bush, whose father Prescott was a Bonesman and a senator, the current President Bush, although his kid at Yale has not been tapped for skull and bones, even though they do admit women now. His child is not skull and bones, his opponent is. John Kerry, Bonesman, class of 66. So we have an all-secret society presidential election. Not that either of them are talking about it. You both were members of Skull and Bones, a secret society at Yale. What does that tell us? Uh, not much, because it's a secret. You were both in Skull and Bones, the secret society. It's so secret we can't talk about it. One a Democrat, one a Republican, miles apart on the issues, but both rooted in the same secret Yale society. Which raises the question, how exactly is the Bush bone connected to the Kerry bone? When you look at the people who are in place, uh, the high places of power, and it's no longer about ownership of these media entities it's about influence and control and if you have somebody in a secret brotherhood or taking a secret oath who's on the board of directors or in a, is in a uh, director's position or a, a position of making decisions and they were put there by these other brethren you know what the, where their allegiances lie they don't lie with the viewer at home the secret society networks of global elites along with their think tank groups and secret annual meetings such as the council on foreign relations bilderberg group and Trilateral Commission are constantly planning new ways to keep the momentum of world events pushing towards their New World Order agenda. Who is on the Trilateral Commission? Show of hands. Now we're, now we're doing it. Okay, all right. The Trilateral Commission. It's a bit smaller than the Council on Foreign Relations. Council on Foreign Relations is about 4,000 members. Trilateral Commission, about 400, about a tenth the size. It started in 1973, and uh, with the Trilateral Commission, Basically, it's uh, the leaders from North America, from Europe, and from Pacific Asia. And the ostensible reason is to get together and um, cooperate between the three regions. The totality of that agenda is covered at length in the stunning new film Endgame by filmmaker and activist Alex Jones. Discussing in detail the eugenics and depopulation agenda of the global elite, Jones presents an uncompromising vision of the future a population reduced by 80%, a worldwide totalitarian police state of constant surveillance, complete financial tracking, and even behavior reading technology. Economies are replaced with a digital currency enforced through implanted chips put into the arms of the servile population. And if you don't go along or decide to rebel, they can simply switch off your chip erasing your bank account, your health care, and even your citizenship. It means the end of human freedom on the planet. Knowing that this heinous plan of complete domination would never openly be accepted by the public, it appears the elites realized the largest problem-reaction-solution event in history would need to be planned and executed 
in order to bring in public acceptance of the sweeping changes that would allow conditions for the elitist plan to be fully implemented. Immediately after the events of September 11, 2001, an outrageous conspiracy theory was promulgated upon the public consciousness. This theory claimed that 19 Saudi hijackers, several of whom turned out to be alive with their identity stolen, hijacked four planes in the eastern United States in the span of an hour and a half, outwitting the entire U.S. Air Force Defense Network, somehow avoiding missile batteries and hitting the Pentagon, and slamming into both of New York's World Trade Center towers, collapsing them both with hot jet fuel. The fourth plane was taken down by brave patriotic passengers, many of whom were able to call loved ones on both cellular and air phones. The hijackers left proof of their guilt in every conceivable location, including parked rental cars and even a guilty terrorist passport that survived the impact and fireball of crashing into a 110-story tower. Based on this solid evidence and other never-released evidence, the obvious culprit was pinpointed as Osama bin Laden, a wealthy Saudi expatriate living in Afghanistan. The United States invaded Afghanistan in late 2001 after the Taliban offered to give up bin Laden, just wanting to see proof of his guilt first. The U.S. decided to invade instead of showing proof, and the war on terror had begun. As a result of this official story, nobody in charge of that day has been fired, arrested, or reprimanded. The so-called official investigation covered the events from the moment of plane impact to the initiation of collapse, and not much else. The 9-11 Commission report contained mostly whitewashing of responsibility, and much back-padding of the officials in charge that day. Thanks to the pretext of 9-11, the United States enjoys several unpopular wars, with a few others looming on the horizon, or being directly pursued. They've also enjoyed the largest debt and deficit in the history of the entire world, along with the creation of new useful departments like Homeland Security, and increases of powers to agencies like FEMA, who handled the Katrina disaster so well. Finally, thanks to the pretext of 9-11, dozens of rights and civil liberties are being legislated away, while at the same time the powers of the government to watch and control your actions are increasing at an alarming rate. Coincidentally, there exists a think tank group called the Project for the New American Century, with members including Elliot Abrams, Jeb Bush, Dick Cheney, Steve Forbes, Dan Quayle, Donald Rumsfeld, and Paul Wolfowitz. They put out a policy paper in the year 2000, before any of them were in power with George W. Bush. The paper was called Rebuilding America's Defenses, and in a section called Creating Tomorrow's Dominant Force, it's written, Further, the process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change, is likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor. Several months later, many of the men in this think tank were now in positions of administrative power. Eleven months after gaining that power, along came a catastrophic and catalyzing event, which has brought revolutionary change.
In mid-2005, a one-hour documentary called Loose Change hit the internet, and within a year had been viewed over 10 million times. Becoming a phenomenon, Loose Change spawned a second edition, a recut second edition, and very recently, a final cut released in late 2007. Thomas Kane and Lee Hamilton are named as chairman and vice chairman of the 9-11 Commission by December 16, 2002. The 10th official Missing from this picture, Philip Zelikow, Executive Director. He would shape both the Commission and its final report. The 9-11 Commission begins its investigation with a time frame of 18 months and a starting budget of $3 million. Its take on the events of 9-11 have inspired millions of people to take action to bring to light the flaws in the official story of 9-11, invading the mainstream and ruffling the feathers of the media shills for the corporate elite. In 2006, we decided to visit New York for the fifth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, to talk to people on the ground, experts in various fields of research, and investigate the truth. What we experienced was amazing. We have to continuously ask questions. That's what a patriot does. That's what a true And when we stop asking questions, it's the day that we have allowed the seeds of despotism to grow at our own door into a great tree that blinds us from the truth. And we will not allow that to happen today. We will not allow that to happen on the next anniversary of 9 11. And if the government has not told the truth, Viewing 9-11 without knowing the history of banking and legal deception it is quite easy to buy into the official story of a never-ending stream of evil Muslim terrorists that hate our freedoms without putting any critical thought into it. Two by two, we're going to be walking around Ground Zero, wearing the shirts, and we're going to have these signs. We're going to give out signs right next to that, uh, right, right in that corner. We can't have signs here. All right, not, no signs in this property. Again, I got another couple thousand, maybe a thousand DVDs coming right now. We're going to give five DVDs to each person so that you can simply hand them out as you walk around. Oh, 
Well, I guess the, the first, the very moment I heard about this, my first thought was uh, somebody's going to make a lot of money off this, and it isn't going to be anybody sitting around in a cave. It's going to be uh, somebody sitting in a boardroom. Uh, and then I saw just all sorts of crazy uh, stuff that didn't seem to fit the official story from, from the get-go. They knew it was Osama, you know, two, two minutes after it happened. Uh, they had the list of 19 hijackers right away, uh, alleged hijackers, I should say. My name is Jason Burmis, and I am a producer, activist, and researcher for Loud of the Words Productions. You know, I helped put together this rally. I got like, designed the t-shirts. And really, it's just really heartwarming to see all these people acting the way they are. You know, because when somebody, you know, somebody over there screams at people, you know, usually we walk away and we're just like, all right, sir, I love you. God bless. You're entitled to your opinion. And we have just, we really conducted ourselves so well here. And, you know, even the protests going on over there now, that's permitted. We have a permit for that. And it's away from the memorial enough where we're not disrespecting anybody, but yet it's getting the word out, you know? The funny thing about Bush is he calls himself a conservative, but all of his policies are extremely liberal. If you're a conservative, you close up the borders. If you're a conservative, you don't put the country into so much national debt that you have to put up our natural resources for collateral. And this is what's behind the UAE port deals. This is what's behind Centro and Spain buying up our highways. They have put us in debt. They have used a giant PR machine to sell us on war so that in our name, by proxy, they can borrow money from the Federal Reserve and international bankers that they know they can't afford to pay back, that we're eventually going to have to hand over our resources to pay for is that conservative? Is it conservative to put out anti-gun legislation? Is it conservative to, uh, I mean, it, the list just goes on and on and on. And in fact, a lot of people say that, that Bill Clinton might have been more conservative than Bush. Two, two sides of the same coin, and we know that the Clinton and the Bush family have been linked together for many, many, many years. And what is really scary and what should really concern people everywhere is that George Bush Sr. has been literally in charge of the government or the uh, the uh, puppet of uh, the, the ultimate international banking controllers for the last 25 years through the Reagan administration, through his own administration, through the Clinton administration, and through his son's administration for the last eight years. And we have no guarantee that he's even going to vacate that office because right now they're trying to repeal the 22nd Amendment so he can stay aboard. It's his exact... Sir, you should be here tomorrow, not today. Thank you, ma'am. It's very disrespectful. It's not disrespectful because we're going to get all sides of the story and we're here to honor Don't do it today. Don't do it today. Yes, ma'am. And we have a wonderful president. George Bush is a wonderful president. Yes, ma'am. You have a right to your opinion. And I'm just talking to this gentleman here. I'm not talking to you. Don't do it today, though. Yes, ma'am. It's a free country and I'm going to speak out. We're here to honor the victims and this is the way to do it. To give to, to give to put the truth out, to put everything on the record is the best way I know to honor the people that died on 9-11. And what's worse is we have to stop the bleeding because people are dying right now for what is basically a, a, a war of profit and a war of control. You know, Smedley Butler, a general, an accredited general, almost ran for president of this country many decades ago, who worked at the highest echelon of the military, said that war is a racket. And he was right about that. Uh, 
Uh, my name is Craig Bartmer. I was a New York City police officer for six years. Uh, I have pulmonary fibrosis. I have uh, scar tissue in both up both of my lungs. My upper frontal left lung lobe is partially collapsed. Well, I guess seeing the seeing the movie Loose Change was enough to uh, make me question and open, you know go, yeah, maybe there is something up. When you start doing your homework and you start getting angrier and angrier, I mean the. Uh, $124 million investment netted Larry Silverstein a $7 billion payday. You know, generally when there's that much money involved in something, something's up. And the fact that the 9-11 Commission completely glossed over that man's details, they didn't even mention one of his buildings that he got money on, and they call that a, a legit investigation, they're full of shit. These first responders are unsung heroes and they deserve respect. Many people ask me, why am I involved in this organization? Why do I do what I do? And uh, my answer is, seeing my friend David Miller cough up blood when I'm talking to him is enough inspiration. This is why I'm active. This is what I do what I do, because of people like David Miller. My friends were knowingly lied to on 9-11 about the air quality, and they deserve respect and justice. Many skeptics and many people who are against the 9-11 truth movement say that we offend the firefighters, offend the first responders, offend the police officers. These people are on our side. They know what's going on. Everybody, please give a huge round of applause for my good friend, David Miller. My name's David Miller, and I'm a veteran of the 69th Infantry Battalion, 42nd Division, New York Army National Guard. I want to tell you tonight about the people we call heroes, about the people in front of you, about the people you've read about in the newspaper for the past week who were invisible for the past five years. Five years of our family members watching us drop dead. And every time Popular Mechanics calls the people of this movement nuts, these propagandists professional liars and tools who cannot, even by any stretch of the imagination, be considered journalists, strike another nail into the coffin of another rescue worker. How was the concrete pulverized? How was glass micronized into dust? And how was there molten steel? But a passport survived. What were those explosions reported by the FDNY? And why weren't the planes intercepted? And how did Hani Hanor learn to fly like that? I don't think we're crazy. Everyone in this administration had motive, intent, and opportunity. Conspiracies are only evidence the courts won't hear. We came to your rescue on 9-11. Now thousands of us in our families need you to come for two hours. For myself and far too many of us, research and the effective treatments going to arrive far too late. I have double metastasizations in both lungs. That's just a reality. But remember the other side of this room that stood up. We're the canaries in the coal mine. Where did all that dust go? We were also killed on 9-11. Avengers. It is the duty of every patriot to protect his country from its government. 
People say, well, they couldn't get away with it. Someone would come forward. They'd be afraid they'd get caught. They wouldn't dare doing something that big. You know, we've all heard those things over and over. Time magazine has beautifully summarized those arguments in its current issue, by the way. And uh, the, these, are, uh, these are arguments that are essentially bogus. For instance, that they couldn't keep a secret. And I, I, I just tried to, uh, there, are so many, there are so many cases you can give where big secrets were kept. The U-2 spy plane was kept secret until Francis Gary Powers was shot down. The stealth bomber was kept secret until they decided to unveil it. Uh, secrets, military secrets are very well kept. There's just gigantic amounts of classified uh, information that nobody hears of. But I tried to come down to just one example, okay? The atomic bomb. 1939, it was decided the United States would build the atomic bomb. Okay, from that time until 1945, when the world learned about it, I remember sitting in a cinema in Swan River, Manitoba, seeing the first newsreel of the bomb in Hiroshima. Okay, the world learned about it in 1945. Okay, that's six years. In those six years, there were 43,000 people working at 39 facilities in 19 states and Canada, and no one found out the secret the atomic bomb was being built. And I have first-hand personal knowledge of that because one of my uncles, Walter, was in Los Alamos working on the bomb, and as far as we knew at home, reading letters from him and so on, as pe families did then, he was in Albuquerque doing a different job. He was one of the 43,000 had perfect cover, even for his immediate family. Don't tell me secrets can't be kept. I'm getting really pissed off with that argument. Yeah. Next time I hear it, I may do something different than just answering it. Yeah. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Hey, buddy. You gonna pay for that or what? Look, buddy, I don't want no house today. Either pay for it or put it back. God, they will determine what is up and what is down. They will determine, um, as Winston Smith said in 1984, that two and two makes five. And if you don't think two and two makes five, you know it's it's off to Siberia for you. And uh, and this is what's happening. You have uh, 9/11. You have uh, uh, no plane wreckage at the Pentagon. You have no plane wreckage in Pennsylvania. You have an obvious case of, you have a building, World Trade, 7, World Trade Center 7, which was obviously demolished, yet wasn't even hit by a plane. Uh, you've got a case of two and two makes five, and everyone believes it, and you've got the mass media saying two and two makes five. Everyone, and if you don't believe two and two makes five, you're evil. You're a terrorist. I mean, that's what we've come to. This is 1984. People have gotten caught up in the micromanaging of debates over the smallest things related to the 9-11 events, losing focus, trying to prove or disprove points that ultimately are irrelevant because they're speculative. Just because someone is like a 9-11 truther or whatever, it doesn't mean they necessarily represent our interests. I mean, the whole movement's been saying it's not about right or left, it's about right or wrong, you know? 
So in Towers of Deception, the media cover-up of 9-11, I devote all of Chapter 2, which is exhaustively footnoted, because if I got anything wrong, I could be pounced on like a, like a ton of bricks. I give 26 exhibits, A to Z, as we say in Canada. And Exhibit A, in every sense of the word, is World Trade Center Building Number 7. I was in ignorance about the collapse, the sudden collapse at 520, uh, the afternoon of 9-11, of World Trade Center Building 7, a 48-story uh, structural steel building came, fell at near free fall speed into its own footprint. Building 7 was a 47-story building that came down at 5.20 p.m. on September 11th, wasn't hit by a plane, housed offices of several government agencies, including Rudy Giuliani's command bunker, and then apparently, due to several small fires on a few floors, completely collapsed into its own footprint. There's also the fact that Building 7's collapse was reported by the BBC a full 20 minutes before it actually happened. Well, only really what you already know. Details are very, very sketchy. Mm. We see these huge clouds of smoke and ash, and we know that behind that there's an empty piece of what was a very familiar New York skyline, a symbol of the financial prosperity of this city. And the fact that the National Institute of Standards and Technology reports the collapse is unexplainable. The fact World Trade Center 7 was the furthest away from the Twin Towers, and that the other WTC buildings, much smaller than Building 7, were all directly impacted by debris from the collapsed towers, yet still survived even though Building 7 did not. There's the fact that World Trade Center leaseholder Larry Silverstein claims that Building 7 was pulled, a demolition term meaning demolished with explosives, even though those controlled demolitions take weeks of planning and preparation. Finally, there is strong speculative evidence supporting controlled demolitions in the Twin Towers as well. The film 9-11 Mysteries covers in-depth the possibilities of the World Trade Center collapse as being a controlled demolition. And the excellent film Who Killed John O'Neill discusses in detail where the trails and connections lead when investigating who created Al-Qaeda, who ran security and leased the World Trade Center, how all the players, the good and bad guys, are related through corporate business, and how the counterterrorism experts may just be the real terrorists. One thing is for certain that so-called debunkers of 9-11 truth cannot deny. The government holds all the security camera tapes, all the documentation, the passenger lists, the materials of the crime, the black box recordings, and most information related to 9-11 that would exonerate themselves, silence their critics, and prove wrong the proponents who fight for full disclosure and a new investigation. But for whatever reason, and in an action that certainly would indicate guilt, they are completely reticent to release even scraps of info, despite the fact that calls to the FBI inform us that there is zero hard evidence connecting Osama bin Laden to the attacks of September 11th. He's not even wanted for the attacks on the FBI's top 10 most wanted website. It would appear that 9-11 was a multi-stage, multi-faceted operation with several key goals. One, to act as a pretext for the war on terror, which is a war on both innocent people and the liberties of citizens. Two, to act as an insurance fraud, netting Larry Silverstein a several billion dollar return 
on a $124 million investment. 3. To cheaply demolish old buildings that were too expensive to renovate without having to pay for the demolition, scaffolding, or cleanup costs. 4. To earn money on several put options and stock manipulations based on foreknowledge of the events of that day. 5. To act as a public snuff film, traumatizing the public consciousness into a state of shock whereby new laws such as the Patriot Act could be easily passed and countries could be invaded without much thought or backlash. A complete psychological warfare operation. 6. To potentially cover up the evidence of both theft of gold bullion and to destroy computer evidence of several fraudulent electronic financial transactions performed in the brief time before the attacks. And 7. To enable the shifting of the paradigm of public consciousness to one of constant fear, rendering them more easily manipulated. Richard Andrew Grove is a corporate whistleblower who was almost killed the morning of 9-11. When he was due to give evidence of money laundering to his co-workers at a software firm that specialized in paperless financial transactions. Over the last five years, Grove has pieced together the puzzle of what happened that day and why. He has uncovered and linked some very important clues running a podcast called 9-11 Synchronicity, and starting a media company called Eight the State Public Media and Research. An essential lesson for any serious 9-11 researcher is the Project Constellation virtual meeting recorded by Richard Grove almost two years ago, where he explains his story, why he's doing what he's doing, and his goals in exposing what has happened. I mean, look at Iraq right now. There's as many private contractors are over there as there are soldiers. Right. And they're getting paid a heck of a lot more than what our military personnel are being paid. You know, you got Blackwater and you got all these other entities over there. And uh, people need to remember that there are people in war who profiteers that profit greatly when war. You know, Halliburton. Take a look at what their stock has gone up since the war began and what it was before. And another interesting little thing I saw when when uh, when Bush came right when Bush was campaigning to win in 2000, uh, he criticized Clinton for having no energy policy. And at that time, a barrel of crude oil was 31 bucks a barrel. Right. Today, it's what as high as 111 dollars a barrel. And that's in, you know, it's gone up 300% in less than eight years. I would say Bush has a great energy policy, making the Saudis rich. They have made our, our consciousness or our ability to view the world very small. So we're all looking through a peephole, but we think that's, that's huge, that that's all we've had. Well, I'm telling you that there's a widescreen version here. There's a big picture. And once you can take in enough pixels to start to, for this picture to develop, then that's an interesting cognitive process that I think a lot of people would enjoy being involved in if they only knew it existed. Because if you just go to where the news and the, and the, the corporate media and the, and the regime of power takes you, it's a very bleak picture if you understand it for what it is and can't see anywhere forward.
So I think that being able to intake some of this information allows people to project forward and to be able to have uh, you know headlights instead of driving in the dark. I have a lot of questions now about 9-11. You know, first let me say, when it happened when I was governor, I regret. I regret that I went on my military tunnel vision. You know, I'm a former Navy SEAL. They told us we were attacked. And, you know, I will defend the country as my brother did and as my parents did. And I didn't question it at first. I thought, well, how could it be? And I'm really kicking myself now because after having gone to Mexico and spending winters down there, I don't watch much TV, but I do something else. I read books. And last year I read 16 books. Now, certainly not all of them on 9-11, but I love to read history books. I don't read fiction because I have my own imagination. And I don't need uh, some writer to try to take my own imagination from me. So I like to read history and what I consider somewhat factual books. And, you know, then I started, my son kept on my case about going to the Internet and watching this loosechange.com. And so when my wife and I returned one Sunday, we decided to watch it. It takes about an hour. And I went through every emotion when I watched this. I went through anger. I went through fear. I went through crying. I went through almost getting sick to my stomach. And I started thinking back to 9-11. And my questions are simple. How can two planes knock down three buildings? We don't want to think about those things. And when you have an event like 9-11 being showed over and over and over again, or Oklahoma City or the 1993 World Trade Center tragedy, those are, you know, snuff films. Those are snuff films that are being showed over and over and over again to people. And you're in a passive, receptive position where you're sitting in front of it, watching it over and over and over again. More and more people are waking up to the truth. That at the very least, a completely new, independent investigation of these attacks needs to happen. And the soldiers that are in Afghanistan and Iraq need to come home because there is no actual good reason for them to be there. Only rationalizations presented over and over, delaying their return and maximizing profits for the warmongering banking interests. Now that you know what the elitist goal is, to centralize political, legal, financial, and military power, you can now view the events of 9-11 as they actually are. A coordinated psychological operation used to create a multi-profitable situation for many cartel capitalistic entities, as well as acting as a pretext for unlimited war on terrorism and the extreme reduction of personal liberties protesting, and freedom. 9-11 itself, as an event, allows the transformation from a covertly enslaved society pretending to be free into an overtly enslaved society based on the Napoleonic Code of what is not permitted is forbidden. On a positive note, as Richard Grove has pointed out, 9-11 9-11 is the event that acts as a keyhole, allowing us to see the bigger picture of what is really going on. Another reason to have hope in the face of the 9-11 events and the tightening of the proverbial noose that has followed 
is that as the news closes, more and more people are waking up and seeing what is happening. For those of us who believe that humanity is due to undergo a transcendent expansion of our collective awareness, 9-11 is the event that allows us to look at the world from a more informed perspective and see the true interconnectedness of not only the elite power structure, but the ways in which we all relate and correlate to each other. There is truly a plethora of resources to look at the 9-11 event from just about every conceivable angle. But at this point, the official story at the very least has been blown away to be shown as a total fraud. It is extremely important to get a full contextual understanding as to who would have, who could have, and who did mastermind, profit, and benefit from the attacks, and then blame Muslims in another country. The recent revelations of the destruction of Al-Qaeda interrogation tapes by the CIA, without any disclosure to anyone in the chain of command, underscores the nature of the deception. They wish to get rid of whatever evidence that exists that disproves their official story. But there are simply too many factors for them to effectively control, save our ignorance. The elitist media insists that not only is the official story the only truth, 2 plus 2 equals 5, but anyone who questions that truth, even an American icon like Willie Nelson, is branded as unpatriotic and ridiculed as crazy, without ever addressing the actual evidence that's been presented. When someone insults you after you bring them a logical and rational argument, it is because they have no way to win the argument. End of story. To learn the related history leading up to the 9-11 events, and how the war on terror is really a war on your remaining freedoms, be sure to visit thecauseofeffect.com and learn how to stand up against this veiled oppression. When you ask yourself, cui bono, who benefits, when looking at a situation or event, things start to make a bit more sense. No Muslim, whether they're in Al-Qaeda or Iraq or wherever, has ever benefited from the September 11th attacks. The only people who've benefited are those who want to use that event to do things they couldn't normally get away with, and that's the pattern of behavior our leaders are currently exhibiting. Knowledge is power. And the fear that is thrust onto you from official sources, from fear-mongering newscasts to experts claiming the next bird flu is just around the corner. Fear is the obvious favorite tool the elites use to keep us dumb, keep us occupied, and keep us obedient to their will. They truly do not want an informed populace, and thus it almost makes sense that it would be your duty as a human being on this good earth to try and be as aware as possible so that you can make the best decisions to enhance your life and the lives of those you care about. With that awareness and the love and open-mindedness needing to maintain and grow the awareness, you'll be surprised how much power you actually have to change life for the better and manifest a positive reality for everyone. Hope, fearlessness, awareness, and determination are the biggest enemies of slave drivers and are the tools we must equip in order to take our collective human society back. world of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act.
like if I had to guess, what I want to see is I want to see I want to see a trial. I want to see the people who are actually responsible brought to justice. I want to know the perpetrators. I want to know who did what. And then I want those people brought to justice, whatever justice is. And I want my goddamn country back. I want to appeal the Patriot Act. I want to, you know, shatter the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, I want to get back to the fucking Constitution. I want all that, and I want their punishment to be public. I don't want them to be hustled away somewhere. Well, they've set the precedent for that now with Saddam Hussein. Well, I don't want to see a public hanging. No. I don't either. And let me tell you tell you what I don't want to see. I don't want to see an execution. What I do want to see is these people put in an all-white prison, specially built for them, no torture, three square mils a day, any a standard prison cell, nothing posing, but it's going to be a 24-hour network. So anytime during the day, I'm dead serious, anytime during the day, if you want to see Dick Cheney crying on the toilet right next to his bed, you can. That's what I want. Send them prison everything cell. to nothing. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not, I'm not looking for them to get tortured. I don't want no vengeance. I want something better than they give most prisoners. But you know yeah. what? I want everybody to see it because I want the richest guy at the top of this chain to, to be able at one point to say, wow, there's my lieutenant. And he's crying on the toilet. <laughs> you know, I want that. I want that bad. That sends a very strong message. You know, how far until they get to me? Because I'm, I'm not under any illusions that we'll get the top guy of all this criminal, you know, criminality, or the several top guys. But we can get some of them. And you have to go through crazy to get to the truth, because that's where they hide the truth. They put crazy between you and the truth, so you have to kind of go through there. Now, if you go out there and you don't have a partner to bounce some ideas off of and you're not diligent about your reading you're going to read some crazy things and you're going to bounce in and out of that atmosphere like an fm radio signal but if you you know if you apply your wave like an am signal which broadcasts actually am bounces around fm broadcasting in deep space but the idea is that you want to get straight through there so you want to design this rocket so you decide that you're going to take this step away from bill o'reilly and, and fox news and cnn or whatever you need to chart a course you need to say, I'm not trying to get here. I'm trying to get to the truth. I'm trying to get outside of all this uh, innuendo and rumor. And you're looking for truth in action, right? Because you have experienced a traumatic event, whether you were there or you've just watched it on TV. You, you know, that's what that's what 9/11 was. You know, so it's it. They hope to use it to enslave us, and I hope to leverage the tragedy and convert it into something positive by saying. It has made us all stop, look, recognize, and take action. And to start to convert some of that negative energy into positive energy, you have to both take people some truth and show them what happened that day, but you also have to put the rest of their lives in context so that they feel that they have a stronger grip and that they can be more actionable in more meaningful ways and basically live a more efficient life. And if you're going to go to send your kids to school or college and think they're going to get educated on what's really going on, that is, I mean, who runs those places? The government runs them to dumb us down and hide the truth from us. But the truth is there. The remedy is there. There is solution. It's there. But we need to get educated in the proper way on the proper stuff. Yeah, so we have to manifest a better world. And it's, I mean, it's, that's the whole thing. It's, it is just a real slight, uh, paradigm shift yeah you see something a little bit differently and you're like oh i mean the thing is is the sort of the more information we have it's to me there's a difference between information and knowledge we don't really have much knowledge um uh well, i just serve notice and i let them know that they're not my government and if world government 
it comes about, it's only because people aren't waking up, aren't choosing to address their own ignorance and serving notice and choosing to not be governed at all. And the one world government would be just a whole bunch of people saying no to government. 